1: My mom was a 9/11 survivor. Mm. She was in the South Tower, um, and she made it out. She got caught up in the ash cloud. My mom
2: fought cancer till her death. I mean, it's really—I don't know—what is it becoming?
3: Like,
4: I don't know, but there is a line that gets crossed on the, the level of lives that we talked about. You know, we've joked about things like the scarf and volleyball championship team. This is like a different yeah. level.
2: Hey, everybody. Caitlin and I are here. Poppy is off today. We were talking about George Santos, and the question I was really asking her is, is there no bottom, right? Like, where does this end? It's one of, one of uh, Republican Congressman George Santos's most brazen claims, okay, that his mom was inside the World Trade Center, survived the 9-11 attacks, only to die of cancer, CNN uncovering evidence that his mom wasn't even in the United States at the time. Plus this...
5: He searched how long before a body starts to smell. At 4.58 a.m., how to stop a body from decomposing.
4: Gruesome Google searches and a disturbing shopping list. Prosecutors laying out explosive evidence as the husband of the missing Massachusetts mother, and a Walsh, stands accused of murder.
2: And let's talk about the U.S. economy headed toward a cliff. We could hit the debt limit. Today, We're going to break down what that means for you and the serious fallout Americans are facing if Congress fails to act. But we have to begin with this, okay? Another day, another apparent George Santos live. New York's new Republican congressman has repeatedly claimed that his mother was in the South Tower of the World Trade Center on 9-11. But new immigration records obtained by CNN contradict that claim. Straight now to CNN's Son of who joins us now from Washington this morning? Good morning. The lies just keep getting worse and worse. What do you know at this moment?
6: They certainly do, Don. And this is on such a sensitive subject, how and when his mother died. On multiple occasions, Santos has claimed his mother was in the South Tower of the World Trade Center on 9-11. And he's intimated that that led to her death later on in 2016. And this is a claim that was on his campaign website and he repeated many, many times. Here's how he put it in his own words just in the last year.
1: My mom was a 9-11 survivor. She was in the South Tower um, and she made it out. She got caught up in the ash cloud. My mom fought cancer till her death.
6: But we now know that his mother was not in New York and was not even in this country during 9-11. Newly uncovered immigration records show that his mother was actually in Brazil between 1999 and 2003. Our representatives for Santos Dawn did not even get back to CNN when asked about this contradiction.
2: Well, Sondland, I've got to ask you because we also learned that that Santos allegedly stole $3,000 from a GoFundMe that could have saved a sick dog. What do you know about that?
6: That's right. This was a GoFundMe page that George Santos set up for a veteran to help raise funds for a life-saving procedure that his pit needed at the time. And the owner of the dog, as well as another veterans veteran, they're saying now that they never saw that money. They never received the $3,000 that they said was raised for this dog. And um, the veteran says when he tried to go and access the funds, Santos was uncooperative in getting him the money. And they've produced these text message exchanges with Santos, one where they accuse him directly at the time of running a bogus charity. Um, Santos tells CNN that he has no clue what this veteran talking about. Sunlin John.
2: joining us from Washington. Thank you very much, Sunlin. Yes. Appreciate that. By the way, the veteran is going to join CNN this morning live in our next hour. Caitlin?
4: Also today, the United States is expected to hit its debt ceiling, technically. The limit currently stands at $31.4 trillion. Here are three things to know about this, why this matters to so many people, because it's not just this big idea of just a fight for Washington. This actually really matters, Christine Romans, about what the implications of this, hitting this today, and how much time is left.
7: What does it mean? This is a really important moment, really, because this is the upper limit of what the U.S. can borrow. And the United States is run on borrowed money right we run deficits and that adds to the national debt this is going to be a political fight but this is a main street story here no question this is a main street story and what will happen here next is the u.s starting today the treasury secretary is going to have to do what we call extraordinary measures Essentially, it buys time. Four or five months, I think, is how much they can they can stop some investments, suspend some new investments, which is a point of weakness for the U.S. government. You want to be always investing in the right retirement accounts for civil service servants, for example. But um, this will be moving the money around, if you will, accounting moves for four or five months until this becomes a real crisis that could be a default. So it buys time, but it doesn't actually solve the problem. That's absolutely right. And the problem is, the problem is that the U.S borrows so much money and then fights over whether to pay the bills they've already spent. And I want to be really clear here. Uh, What you're talking about, if you don't raise the debt ceiling, is not paying for what you have already spent. New spending is something else, right? And we know that the GOP wants to put, some of the GOP want to put some uh, spending restrictions on any kind of uh, rise in in the debt limit. But if you don't raise the debt ceiling... Eventually, you have to decide which bills to pay, right? You could default on your debt. That is something that has never happened and can never happen. The reason why the U.S. is the gold standard in the global financial system is because we always pay our bills on time. Or you start to delay payments to federal workers. You delay Social Security and bene- veteran benefits. Can you imagine a position where you are giving an IOU to a member of the military who's defending this country because you haven't raised the debt limit and you can't actually pay your bills? That's an incredibly weak position for the U.S. to be operating from.
4: Yeah, and basically, this is, I mean, this is something that I feel like we always deal with. It's always this perennial issue. We've seen showdowns before, but this is going to be, uh, I think, given this new Republican House majority and the fight we just saw play out over how to pick a House speaker. This is going to be potentially the messiest fight that we've seen in a decade.
7: I think it is. The political risk is the most it's been in a decade. But I spoke to someone this morning, a financial manager this morning, who said, look, they always go to the brink and then realize what the risks are and then step back. And the risks are big. You're talking about job losses. You're talking about a 401k shrinking. You're talking about higher costs for mortgages spiking borrowing costs that ironically would add to the national debt, which is what we're fighting about in the first place. So if you don't handle this right and smartly, you end up making the problem worse. You slow the U.S. economy and then it's all a self-fulfilling problem. So uh, there's a big discussion. (laughs) Financial people in financial markets, we just shake our heads about why Washington does this. You know better do than you I want do. want them to get rid of it? I mean, what is... Oh, yes. There are a lot of people who say that they have done so many times they go to the brink on this, they should just get rid of it. And the spending restraint comes in the appropriations process, right? Yeah. It comes at the beginning. It shouldn't come at the end when you're paying the bills.
4: Well, here it is. We'll see what here happens. We're going to talk to uh, some officials at the White House about this later on. Christine Romans, thank you're you, you welcome. so
2: much. Don? Yeah, it I mean, it's obviously a big issue just looking at the couple of papers for the Wall Street Journal has retail sales post biggest drop of 2022. And then it's also when Microsoft cuts Cast a pall on the economy, which we're going to talk about now with Vanessa Ukevich, because the tech industry is taking another big hit. Microsoft plans to lay off 10,000 workers. The tech giant says it's part of a broader move toward cutting costs. So Vanessa is here. Vanessa, what is going on with this? This Is another huge hit to tech jobs in 2023?
8: Absolutely, another one in a line and a string of tech layoffs that we've seen from major companies. One analyst saying these companies were spending like rock stars during the pandemic, and now they're facing a new economic reality. And just yesterday, we heard from Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella at Davos at the World Economic Forum, and he really put it into perspective. He said, quote, no one can defy gravity and gravity here is inflation adjusted economic growth. And a lot of these tech companies are hedging on a potential recession that's not off the table yet. And so Microsoft laying off 10,000 workers. That's a little less than 5 percent of the overall company. But they join Amazon Lift, uh, Coinbase and other major tech companies that have done layoffs over the last couple months. Just in January alone, the month is not over yet. Just this month, 37,000 layoffs in tech. That is the wow. largest amount of tech layoffs that we've seen in the last year going back to January 2022, except for one month when you had all of those major, major companies laying people off in December. But significant, uh, just adding to the toll that it's really taking on these tech companies.
2: Vanessa Yurkevich, thank you very much. Appreciate that.
8: Also today, a
4: definitive declaration from President Zelensky bluntly saying that he does believe Ukraine will retake Crimea which, of course, was illegally annexed by Russia nearly a decade ago under the Obama administration. When President Obama was in office, I should say. Both Russia and Ukraine both claim ownership over Crimea has become the symbolic battleground in the war between Russia and Ukraine. Speaking to the World Economic Forum, President Zelensky said Crimea is, quote, our land, and he urged Western allies to provide him with more weaponry to regain what is ours. And now President Biden may be willing to do just that, according to a new report from the New York Times this morning. They say that despite the hard line that they've taken in the past from the United States, refusing to provide Kiev with far-reaching weapons, now that line is starting to soften. Of course, the United States has always maintained that Crimea does belong to Ukraine, that it was illegally taken by Russia. But this comes as the U.S. is also set to announce one of the biggest military aid packages to Ukraine Since the beginning of this war nearly a year ago, it is expected to be worth two and a half billion dollars. And the first time is going to include striker combat vehicles. CNN's Alex Marquardt is joining us now. Alex, good morning. Tell us exactly what these striker vehicles mean to Ukraine and what it is going to do for the forces there on the ground who so clearly need the help.
9: Well, Caitlin, what is notable in this massive new package, expected to be around $2 billion, as you say, is both what is new in it and what is not in it that the Ukrainians have been desperately asking for. The new elements are the striker combat vehicles. They are uh, armored vehicles that will allow Ukrainian troops to be carried across the battlefield, giving the Ukrainians a significant new mechanized capability particularly when combined with the Bradley fighting vehicles, which were just committed uh, to Ukraine by the United States in the last aid package earlier this month, which was and is to, this, to, to date the biggest military aid package. Those two together uh, will allow Ukrainians to really go on the offensive to try to take back territory. Now, the striker is lighter and faster than the Bradley. But the two together really do give the Ukrainians a significant new mechanized capability.
4: And Alex, this also comes as there's this remarkable showdown happening between the United States and Germany. It seems to be uh, kind of percolating here where there is this new German defense minister over the decision about sending tanks to Ukraine. What's the latest on that?
9: Well, Caitlin, the U.S. does want Ukraine to get new Western tanks. They are not sending their own tanks, American tanks, because they're too logistically uh, challenging. The the tank that most have settled on that would be best for the Ukrainian fight is the Leopard 2, which, as you say, is made by Germany. In fact, the secretary of defense, Lloyd Austin, is in Germany as we speak, in Berlin, meeting with his German counterpart to press the Germans to send this tank to Ukraine. Now, the Germans have said they don't want to go this alone. They don't want to be the only country out there doing that. other countries are saying, we're ready to go with you. The Brits have committed a squadron of their tanks. Other European countries saying they're ready to send their leopard tanks if Germany gives the word. Germany has to give permission because these are German tanks. Uh, senior defense officials saying just yesterday they are very optimistic that they can get Germany to that point by the end of the week. Caitlin?
4: All right, we'll see what Secretary Austin does. Alex, thank you.
9: And something else this
2: morning, a political stunner out of New Zealand. The prime minister, Jacinda Ardern, says she is stepping down in less than a month. She choked up as she explained her decision saying that she just doesn't have enough energy for the demands of a job anymore.
3: I believe that leading a country is the most privileged job anyone could ever have, but also one of the more challenging. You cannot and should not do it unless you have a full tank, plus a bit in reserve for those unexpected challenges. This summer, I had hoped to find a way to prepare not just for another year, but another term, because that is what this year requires. I have not been able to do that. And so today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election, and that my term as prime minister will conclude no later than the 7th of February. Politicians are human. We give all that we can for as long as we can, and then it's time. And for me, it's time.
2: Well, Audern was elected in 2017 when she was just 37 years old, and she handled a lot in her five and a half years in office, including a baby. She gave birth the year after she took office. Only one other leader in modern times has done that, and that's Pakistan's Benazir Bhutto. Audern was the first to bring her infant to the UN Assembly Hall, the baby, Neve, was just three months old at the time, but the PM chalks it all up to just being a working mom.
3: Obviously, this is, this is the norm for, for women who enter into motherhood. So whilst I hope there will be a day when it, it isn't worthy of comment, you know, currently it is. And so I accept that, but there will be a time.
2: Her tenure has just seen its challenges, uh, has seen a lot of challenges, including what Auden herself called one of New Zealand's darkest days when a gunman opened fire at two Christchurch mosques, killing more than 50 people. That was in 2019. In the aftermath, she refused to speak the killer's name.
8: He is a
3: terrorist. He is a criminal. He is an extremist. But he will, when I speak, be nameless. And to others, I implore you, Speak the names of those who were lost, rather than the name of the man who took them. He may have sought notoriety, but we in New Zealand will give him nothing, not even his name.
2: And weeks later, she spearheaded the passage of a bill that banned most semi-automatic weapons. Then came the coronavirus pandemic.
3: If you're not working in essential services, then, uh, then you shouldn't be going out um, to work. But by and large, we're very keen that you stay home, that you stay within what we call your bubble, the bubble of people that you'll be with um, for the next um, four weeks.
2: Well, early on, Ardern was praised for her go hard and go early approach, which played a major role in her 2020 re-election. But she faced growing backlash as time wore on from people opposed to those mandates. There was a three-week-long protest outside the parliament last year that ended with, her, with hurled rocks and fires. Another legacy, dealing with sexism. Last fall, she hit back at a reporter who suggested she only met with Finland's prime minister because they're both young women.
3: My first question is, I wonder whether or not anyone ever asked Barack Obama and John Key if they met because they were of similar age. Uh, We, of course, uh, have uh, a higher proportion of men in politics. It's reality. Because two women meet, it's not simply because of their gender.
2: Well, she may be an icon to some, but her popularity at home has waned recently. Radio New Zealand polls from uh, last year showed that her support as preferred prime minister, was hovering around 30%. That is the lowest level since she took office as New Zealand braces for a recession and confronts a cost-of-living crisis. Certainly an interesting turn of events. Um, Again, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago that she was elected, but in that time, in that short time since 2017, she's definitely dealt with a lot.
4: She's been in office for, yeah, for several years, and she has dealt with serious challenges, but she's been one of these world leaders who has really stood out. She's faced all of these, you know, criticisms and whatnot, and she had that moment recently with um, the um, other PM, the other young woman, and they were talking about what it's like. They got this question about if they had, were meeting because they had so much in common.
2: Also, wasn't she part of the one that was like, you're so young? Did you guys... Well, that was, maybe that was someone else, but I think when, when she came I into office... I think was the finished
4: bit, PM, yeah. But they were
2: asking her, too, when she came into office about her age, and what have you, it a, certain challenges that she faces as a woman.
4: Yeah, and she was saying, no, no, I'm just a world leader. It has nothing to do with me being a woman or my age.
2: I, but can you believe, though, okay, Caitlin, that she... No one had brought their baby. I mean, that speaks volumes, just that a simple act of bringing your child to work could have such a worldwide impact.
10: Yeah.
4: Yeah. Absolutely. All right. All right. Also this morning here at home, one of the FBI's most troubling discoveries at Mar-a-Lago were empty folders with classified markings, 48 of them that they found. So what happened to the highly do- sensitive documents inside? Were there ever documents inside? For President Trump has a new explanation, but the question is, does it hold any water?
2: Plus, disturbing Google searches and a shopping trip to Home Depot. Prosecutors beginning to lay out their murder case against the husband of the missing Massachusetts mother, Anna Walsh. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
4: All right, a hazmat suit, a hacksaw, and a gruesome list of online searches on how to get rid of a body. Prosecutors say this is all proof that Brian Walsh murdered his wife, Anna, the missing Massachusetts mother, who vanished more than two weeks ago. Notably, investigators have not found a body, but they decided to file a murder charge anyway, based on all the evidence that they have been able to uncover. As they read that list of what he had Googled, Brian Walsh shook his head in court yesterday as the prosecutor went through what he was searching for, allegedly on his young son's iPad. It was almost too difficult to listen to. Among the searches, quote, can you be charged with murder without a body? Jason Carroll is live in Quincy, Massachusetts. He's been covering this story for us. Jason, you know, obviously we don't believe that prosecutors have been able to locate a body, but they have been able to find DNA evidence and tools that they say he allegedly used to dismember this body. What else did we learn from prosecutors yesterday?
11: Right. Well, key to their case, uh, Caitlin, some of it you mentioned there will be those alleged Internet searches from Walsh, searches that included information not only about DNA and divorce, but also about decomposing bodies.
5: Rather than divorce, it is believed that Ryan Walsh dismembered Anna Walsh and discarded her body.
11: Chilling new details revealed in court by prosecutors describing the evidence against the Massachusetts father who allegedly murdered his wife and allegedly tried to cover it up. Brian Walsh, in custody since January 8th, when he was charged with misleading investigators for searching for his wife, was in court for the arraignment Wednesday and formally charged with Anna Walsh's murder.
12: you understand
11: Walsh? I do. The prosecution laid out some of the disturbing evidence against Walsh, saying he used his son's iPad to make numerous online searches.
5: On December 27th, defendant Googled what's the best state to divorce for a man. At 4.55 a.m. on January 1st, he searched how long before a body starts to smell. At 4.58 a.m., how to stop a body from decomposing.
11: Later that morning, he Googled, can identification be made on partial remains and dismemberment and the best ways to dispose of a body? On January 2nd at 12.45 p.m., Walsh searched, hacksaw, best tool to dismember. And at 1.10, can you be charged with murder without a body? The following afternoon, the searches continued, with Walsh searching at around 1 p.m. what happens to hair on a dead body. During the course of the investigation, police found 10 trash bags from a dumpster and trash facility with items including towels, rags, slippers, tape, gloves, cleaning agents, a COVID-19 vaccination card with Anna Walsh's name on it, a hacksaw and a hatchet. They also discovered personal items, including a portion of a necklace believed to have been worn by Anna Walsh in several photos. Tests of some of these items by the state crime lab determined the presence of DNA from both Anna and Brian Walsh. After the arraignment, defense attorney Tracy Minor called out prosecutors for leaks in the case, saying in a statement, in my experience, whereas here, the prosecution leaks so-called evidence to the press before they provide it to me, their case isn't that strong. And Caitlin, also during the arraignment, we got some sort of a hint at to what could be a possible motive and all of this. Again, I point you back to some of those alleged internet searches, two in particular, one that had to do with Walsh allegedly searching what is the best state for a man to get a divorce in. And the second one, how to inherit once someone has gone missing. Caitlin?
4: Just so awful for her and for her friends and family. Jason Carroll, thank you for that update. All right, not in the World Trade Center, not even even in the United States. New documents obtained by CNN overnight debunking Congressman George Sanders' claim about his mother's death in 9-11. Wow. Will his party and the leaders respond?
2: Sorry about that. Wow, it's just every day gets crazier. Plus, the Coast Guard is keeping its eyes on a Russian ship that is sailing off the coast of Hawaii. Is it being used to spy is the question.
1: A new poll found that President Biden's approval rating has not been affected by the classified documents scandal. (laughs) Today, Biden said in that case, there's another 100 documents stashed in the pool house. Let's
9: just
13: get that out.
14: Santos set up a GoFundMe for the dog surgery, but when it reached $3,000, he closed it and became increasingly difficult to contact. Santos refused to give him any of the donations, saying he would take the money and use it for other dogs. Yes, other dogs like Max, and Skipper, and Rover
12: DeVolder. you going to mess with somebody's dog? Have you not heard of John Wick? <laughs> Your ass is in trouble. Trouble up.
2: Oh, boy. Well, we're going to speak with that veteran straight ahead about the, the dog issue. No laughing matter, by the way. But this morning, it appears George Santos has been caught in yet another lie. Um, he has claimed, right, that his mother was in the South Tower on 9-11. That has been reported for a while. and Even, you know, it's on his campaign website. Here's the problem. Immigration records apparently show that that is not actually the case. She wasn't even in the U.S. on a 2003 form seen by CNN. The mother indicated that she hadn't been to America since 1999. She also uh, filed paperwork in Brazil in 2001, just months before 9-11, saying that her green card had been stolen. It's in addition to a really a long list of lies from the newly elected congressman. So let's discuss now. Seeing in political commentator Scott Jennings and Alyssa Farah Griffin, they are both here. I'm sure they don't want to get close to this
15: <laughs> Don't want to touch with a, this. T- with
2: a 10-foot pole.
15: No. There, no. There's no. one universal good morning. good morning. One universal rule of politics, you don't mess with veterans and dogs. Actually just life. And no. he managed to do both oh. of those things. Okay, well,
2: We're gonna talk about that, but let's talk about the, the the mom issue. What do you make of these Because it it shows that his mother was not apparently in the World Trade Center on September eleventh. That's pretty serious. It's a serious time for a serious incident for our country and the world and then
15: Well, and I think broadly it speaks to his character. I mean, if you're lying about, you you know, your mom's life, he's also apparently lied about the time that she died uh, through various tweets that have been resurfaced. He's a dishonest person. I'd say he's he's a bit of a con artist. But, um, well, he's like the gift that keeps giving in terms of, like, it's kind of funny sometimes. It's very serious. Um, From a national security perspective, this guy is ripe for adversaries to exploit. Like, Scott and I, when we were going into government, they, we go through the SF86 process. They look into who you lived with. With. they talk to old roommates, all your old employers, to know that you're not somebody who could be blackmailed or subject to corruption. We don't do that with elected officials. It's a little bit different. The primary basically does that. And this is a person who is ripe to be a target for blackmail and exploitation. And now he's serving in Congress, and that's dangerous. This yeah. is a person totally unequipped to be there.
4: And it's the thing is, it's so now he's lied about 9-11. He lied about the Holocaust. He lied about the Pulse nightclub shooting. He, he's lied about these really serious things. And I think the thing is, this is a consistent thing that he has said about his mother and 9-11. And he, as he's been caught in some of these lies, has removed some of them from his campaign website. But as of last night, this one about 9-11 was still on there.
7: You ever meet
16: people who, like, lie so much and so long about so many? They, they, they begin to not be able to tell the difference yeah between That's, what's... Yeah.
2: Uh, this the... guy I know named Scott Jennings. So...
16: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go <on>. Trump. <laughs> Lee. <laughs> go uh, on. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you just get the impression that that he has just lived his entire life as someone who makes things up to get through the next few moments. And, and if people seem to respond to it, then he uses it. And if they don't, he picks another thing. And so it's, it's quite troubling. I mean, I, I still think to get rid of him out of the con— By the way, if you talk to House Republicans, I mean, nobody wants to associate with this guy. They treat him like a pariah. I think to get rid of him, it would be good Do if— Do they, though? I, oh, yeah. He just got th- He was just
4: put on a committee. Yeah. yeah. yeah the, two, 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 two the, committee. the two
16: worst committees that nobody wants to be on. They stuck know, him in the dark corner. I don't sure, know if he believes but- that. I have sources that don't. Think that he, how would he uh, know? <laughs> I mean, how would he know what's a terrible committee? I mean, they, they stuck him off in the corner. A committee, the ethics committee, these prosecutors, these people that are looking into him, to me, I think the minute somebody comes back and says, yeah, we've, we've sort of validated all these accusations and we can now document without question either he has campaign finance problems or you know whatever it happens to be, that'll be the trigger for them.
2: But won't it go from, excuse me, won't it go from a four? Person majority to a three-person majority, which is something that Kevin McCarthy does. Probably why they're sticking with him right now, the main reason that they're sticking with it right now. I just want to ask, you've worked in government too, yeah. but you are you have been a strategist, right? Mm-hmm. Correct? And and an mm-hmm. advisor. What would your advice be to Kevin McCarthy right now and to Republicans in Washington as it relates to George Santos? Two
16: two part plan. One, essentially put him in timeout, which I think they've they've basically done. And two, they really do need to support the ethics committee moving as quickly as possible to document this person's problems so that they can then use that as the underpinning to toss them out. You would get, we would say get rid of it. Absolutely. I mean, if, if the Ethics Committee says you've lied, and by the way, you may have broken all these different laws on your campaign finance paperwork,
2: absolutely, toss them. Even at this point? Sure. OK.
15: Well, and going a step further, too, if I were Kevin McCarthy, I would be actively recruiting in that district for who another credible Republican is that could run. If this is something that comes to a resignation and goes to a special election, it's obviously a D plus one district. Biden carried it, so he's worried about what's going. What would be a difficult uphill battle? But this guy won it. It's not that a Republican can't win it. Be looking for who that you know moderate businessman or woman is and try to get them ready to go if that comes to it.
16: Yeah, if they don't move on him, I mean, look, they're going to toss him out in the primary next year. Anyway, those voters are. I mean, this guy's not going to be in Congress, you know, at, at a maximum. He's going to he be in Congress two for two years. That's two
4: years that his constituents yeah. have this guy representing them. Yeah. Melissa, I want to ask you about something else, though, because we also were looking at what the former president was arguing yesterday. And I- I've covered his classified documents thing very closely, but it-, it struck out to me what he is now talking about, which are the empty folders that the FBI found when they searched Mar-a-Lago. I think it was close to 50 of them, 48 of them. And now he's zeroing in on this, saying that they were just a cool keepsake he kept from Oval Office meetings where they'd come in with classified documents in the folders. He would keep just the folder, and they would take the documents. Is that ever something you saw happen when you were in the White House?
15: No, and it would be kind of a bizarre thing to do. The whole purpose of a cover sheet is that it covers the classified information. So a CIA briefer, when they take it back, would in all likelihood keep that document. Um, I would assume that if you have a cover sheet that that meant that you had classified information under it. That seemed like a weird line of...
4: Typically argument. in a briefing, if someone gave the president a classified document with a folder, they would take back both, yes,
15: me. yes. That's what's kind of odd about both the Biden and the Trump um, cases is you really do have somebody come in, present it to you, brief it, talk it to, talk you through it, and then take it back for the president to just even be kind of holding and collecting in a drawer classified documents isn't even really standard, um, and if you keep it in your office, it should be in a lockbox. The Oval Office is a skiff, but um, because you do have foot traffic in and out of it, you. You still would have to have it in a lockbox. It, it doesn't really make sense to me why you would, why he's leaning into the cover sheets.
16: The, the president also, I think, said in his statement that if he has the folders, but if there were any documents, they were probably planted there by, by the, the
4: Gestapo, which is now his new name for the FBI. <laughs> which is which is
16: sort of what the, the the fever swamps of the left are saying about the Biden documents. Well, you know, the Republicans must have put them in his garage, and so I, I found that to be the most curious part of the statement: is that you have accusations of planting, they, they, none of these things were planted. Let's just, I mean, come on.
4: But, I mean, what do you make of a former Republican president re- out, outwardly referring to the FBI as the Gestapo? Not saying they're Gestapo-like, not saying some of them are. He is outwardly calling them the Gestapo.
2: Terrible. Awful. The first, your first question at the beginning of this, you ever heard, met someone or heard someone who can't believe? I mean, look, he learned from the best, right? This guy learned from, this is a New York Post, that it's saying, this is sort of my gauge, right, that the New York Post now does not like Trump. Right. And they don't apparently like Santos because they're saying Santos is too big a liar even for (laughs) politics. Yeah. But they didn't even bring up the um, what is it, uh, Katara, (laughs) Katara. Yeah, we now know that
15: he performed in drag in Brazil, which more power to him, allegedly, if he wants to. But um, that will be interesting to see how that fits into his new friends in the Freedom Caucus who've kind of declared a war on drag. Um, Just the one thing I would say there is I think. Trump lowered the standards so much for character and integrity in politics, and George Santos is a direct result of that.
2: Good to see you. Early for you. Are you awake? Yes. Am I not performing up to your high standards (laughs) here? Do you miss fighting with me at night?
16: Uh, Yeah, I was just telling my wife the other day that uh, I really miss... 11.30 11.30 p.m.,
2: my boxing matches with you. Can I let you in on a little secret? <laughs> I don't miss it. <laughs> By the way, I have a story yeah, for Scott. I don't, I don't believe that, actually. I have a story for you coming up. We're going to talk about intermittent fasting, which you got me on intermittent fasting. I lost 30 pounds because, yeah. in large part because of you. Yeah. In, in small works, part now. Yeah. Well, I don't know. They say maybe. All right, we'll Alyssa, let you know.
4: Scott. It's we got to
2: go. Caitlin's moving us along. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you both guys. so
4: much. All right, a different kind of mining is bringing a different kind of pollution to one of the most peaceful spots in North Carolina. Bill Weir spoke to homeowners who are now haunted by the hum of these large fans.
11: When it's at about 75, 80 decibels, I'd say a jet engine, a jet engine never
17: leaves.
2: Look, you may be involved in this because there's more than 20 million people from the Midwest to the Great Lakes under winter storm threats. Some areas expected to see up to 17 inches of snow today. You're looking live at Denver, which recorded the largest snowfall in January in 30 years, more than nine inches as of Wednesday evening. It is the eighth largest two-day snowfall for this month. I say that again, the eighth largest two-day snowfall for this month. I want you to take a look at some of these snowfall totals, more than 23 inches in Myrna, Nebraska, more than 17 inches in Litchfield, Nebraska, 11 inches in Aurora, Arizona. The storm is expected to move east today.
4: All right. It's a different type of pollution disrupting life for people who are living in an Appalachian town in North Carolina. North Carolina. Crypto mining is to blame for noise pollution. Banks of servers running all day, every day, consuming huge amounts of electricity from coal and natural gas. Making a lot of noise. Sinan's Bill Weir joins us now. I guess the question that people have is just how loud is this? Because I don't think a lot of people are familiar with, with these kinds of this kinds of crypto mining.
12: Well, it's, it, the volume goes from maybe 55 to 80 decibels um, in the guy's yard next door to the mine. But it's not the volume, it's the constant. This thing turned on in September 21 and has not shut off. Not at night, not on weekends. Never, ever turning off because that's what the game of crypto is. A lot of people didn't understand it. These are retirees, longtime landowners there, and they'd heard about crypto and thought, eh, maybe it's smoke and mirrors, maybe some invested. But then they heard the sound of crypto, and it changed everything in this county. Take a look. This is a sound of Green Mountain Farms. Certified by Quiet Parks International as one of the most peaceful spots in North Carolina. Thanks to their rare local enforcement of laws against noise pollution. Meanwhile, about 90 minutes away, beautiful Cherokee County sounds like this. It is stack upon stack of computer servers and the fans needed to cool them. This is what's known as a crypto mine and it makes the sound of people in San Francisco trying to make virtual money. How do you describe that noise? So we're probably sitting at probably
11: 65 decibels right now. When it's at about 75, 80 decibels,
12: I'd say a jet engine, a jet engine never leaves. 16 months after the mine fired up without warning, Mike Lugovitz put his house up for sale in frustration. There'd be turkeys out in the field and deer by the hundreds. Yeah. You don't have that anymore. While Tom Lash misses the wildlife. You don't sleep at night. Phyllis Cantrell says she feels trapped. You
6: can actually lay your head on the pillow and hear it hum
12: up through the walls. Have you thought about moving?
6: We're 73 years old. Where are we gonna go?
12: Imagine a game where the dice have a billion sides and the first person to roll a 10 wins. That is essentially crypto mining. And to play that game these days, you need computers. Thousands of computers running 24-7, 365. And after China outlawed cryptocurrency and crypto mining, more and more mines like this began popping up in Appalachia, places where the power is cheap and the regulations are either non-existent or unenforced. But in this deep red Republican pocket.
18: They've got noise 24-7. Noise and sound noise do nothing to help these people. What are you guys going to do to help?
12: The mine has upended local politics.
18: I like to be behind the scenes and, and I I like to serve pot. And I knew that we, we needed to win an election. Project the noise.
12: Outrage over the mine helped flip the balance of power in November's county election. Call upon U.S. Senator Todd Tillis. I do. Congratulations. Right. With the new Board of Commissioners now asking for federal help in ending American crypto mining. To introduce and champion legislation through the U.S. Congress
19: to ban and or regulate crypto mining operations in the United States of America. Motion passed.
12: When asked over LinkedIn for reaction, Chandler Song, one of the mine's co-owners, wrote, Oh boy, they wanted us so bad a year ago. As for the proposed ban, it is unconstitutional to say the least. Song and his crypto mining co-founder made Forbes 30 under 30 list a few years ago and recently claimed quarterly revenues of more than $20 million. But when asked follow-up questions, Song went silent. His mine and Murphy... Has not so far, but the county attorney is looking for a legal way to shut it down. A cautionary reminder that the next time you hear a place as peaceful as Green Mountain Farm,
4: they're fighting with their lives. It's torture.
12: It's chances are someone got loud and fought for it. There was a brutal winter storm across the South right on Christmas Eve. First rolling blackouts in Tennessee Valley Authority history. And when they started getting plunged into darkness and cold, Caitlin, the first thing they did was go down and check the mine. It was still running. So that's another uh, dose of bad blood in this fight. Other counties have pushed back against this. And so if crypto is going to grow the way it has, it might run into resistance in places just like Murphy, North Carolina. It
4: sounds like you're on a tarmac almost. He was saying it's a jet engine that never leaves. It really does sound like you're out boarding a plane or something.
12: And he's like, we got a racetrack right over there. We hear them racing on Friday nights. It's awesome. But at least they stop and we can go to bed.
4: All right, Bill Weir, that's a fascinating piece. Thank you so much.
2: It is fascinating. Thank you both very much. Appreciate it. Which is a better way to lose weight, intermittent fasting or calorie cutting? Dr. Tara Narula has the stats. She's next.
15: More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
4: All right. If one of your New Year's resolutions was to lose weight, This might be of interest to you. A new study by the American Heart Association says a popular diet strategy of limiting food intake to a specific time window, which you may have heard your friends talk about this, it's called intermittent fasting, may not be an effective weight loss strategy. Joining us now to talk about this is our CNN medical correspondent and and cardiologist, Dr. Tara Narula. Uh, Okay, so I know a lot of people who do this. One of them may or may not be at this table. (laughs) That's not me. (laughs) What are the results of this study?
20: So this is an interesting study, and so many people are fascinated by intermittent fasting. And really what they did is they took 547 individuals from three different health systems, and they gave them a mobile app. And they said, we want you to use this to tell us when you wake up, when you sleep, when you eat, and what the size of your meals are. So they were able to tell the time interval between their first meal of the day, their last meal, when they woke up to their first meal meal and then when they took their last meal and when they went to bed. And from all of that information, they were able to find that it was the size and frequency of eating meals that was associated with a small increase in weight gain. But the time interval between your first and last meals did not have any impact on weight gain or loss. So essentially from this study, you would say that changing the timing of when you're eating or what we talk about as intermittent fasting had no impact on helping people lose weight. They also interested, interestingly did find, and we've talked about the value of breakfast, you and I eat breakfast very early, that people who started their eating earlier in the morning and ate, you know, pretty quickly from when they woke up and then ate their last meal at a pretty maybe four or five hours from the time they went to bed, those people tended to not fluctuate in weight as much. Hmm. So, Don, <laughs> are you going to change? No, I, I'm not going to doubt. Else?
2: Look, I'm not going to never <laughs> doubt science right, right. or medicine, but I know it works for me. Yeah. And I know it has worked for me. I know it has worked for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Look, it may not be maybe the intermittent fasting. I think what it does is it causes your stomach to shrink. Mm-hmm. You get used to not eating. And in the time that is allotted for you to eat, like I do 16-8. Yeah. In that eight hours, I often find myself not being able to eat all of the calories that's allotted. and so therefore, I will lose weight. So I think it teaches you discipline, um, and uh, I do think it, it sort of helps in restricting calories. So it may not work in the way that people think it works, it's just intermittent fasting, but I think it's also helping to restrict the calories and it gives you a little bit more discipline.
20: Yeah, there's been a lot of research into this. And some of it says, yes, it works. Some says it does. Some say it doesn't. A lot of the research has been done in animals and it's been sort of short term. So the question is, is this something sustainable over the long term? But there are a couple different types of intermittent fasting programs. You do the 16-8 with that daily intermittent fasting, which is probably the most common. You restrict eating from, say, maybe 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. And then you have that 12-18 hour period where you're not eating at all. Some people do alternate day. So they fast one day, eat the next day. And some do like, a 5-2, where they eat five days and then not two. And, and there's some data that suggests this helps the cells regenerate. It helps you go into a state of ketosis where you break right. down fat. Um, so there, there definitely may be something to it, for sure.
4: No. <laughs> I just See. want people to know you do eat sometimes. I do. You eat McDonald's <laughs> when you do eat, so I don't want people to be worried about you. <laughs> Doctor, thank you for sharing that with <laughs> us. Thank you. Thanks. All right, up next, we have news reporting on President Biden's re-election run and what that looks like.
2: And moments from now, we're gonna be joined by the Navy veteran who says that Congressman George Santos took thousands of dollars that was supposed to help his dying dog. You don't wanna miss that.
13: I
3: believe that leading a country is the most privileged job anyone could ever have. But also one of the more challenging you cannot and should not do it unless you have a full tank we give all that we can for as long as we can and then it's time and for me it's time
2: good morning everyone Poppy off caitlin and i are here that was some when it's time to go some people just know and i admire that she feels that it's time to go and
4: you know It shocked a lot of people, though. I mean, they have their elections coming up in just a few months from now. That was a a resignation that people were not expecting.
2: Well, that was New Zealand's prime minister resigning. We're going to discuss her surprise announcement in a moment with our very own Christiane Amanpour. Plus, President Biden has been planning to announce his re-election bid after February 7th, but then came that whole document scandal. Does that delay or change his decision? New CNN reporting straight ahead
4: also you may be waking up again wondering how this is possible but there is a new george santos lie the new york lawmaker claims repeatedly and consistently that his mother was in the world trade center on 9 11. now we know she wasn't even in the country
2: a bold prediction by vladimir Zelensky in a speech before the world economic forum in davos ukraine's president vowing his country will reclaim crimea from the Russians, but we are going to begin with this. President Joe Biden, who has been planning to announce that he's running for re-election after his State of the Union address, that's in less than a, in three weeks, by the way. But that plan was made before we learned the classified documents were discovered at his Delaware home and his former Washington, D.C. office. Now that the president is under investigation, will he delay or even cancel his big announcement? Straight now to Isaac DeVore. Uh, he joins us now from uh, Washington with this new and CNN I'm- reporting. Good morning to you, Isaac. Is it full um, steam ahead for Biden in 2024? Can you walk us through what you have learned?
1: Yeah, well, look, Don, as you know, there are a lot of people who say that they know what's going on with Joe Biden, and then a very small circle of people who really do. And that small circle of people that uh, I've been trying to report and talk to say their plan was to go uh, with a reelection announcement. Nothing is finalized, but that's the plan sometime after the State of the Union, which as you said, is on February 7th, and that the plan hasn't changed. The timeline, time frame hasn't changed here, uh, despite what we've uh, seen in the news last couple weeks or last couple days uh, about this document situation, that they are uh, full steam ahead, uh, ready to go and and not getting distracted by what's going on here.
4: And Isaac, I think one question, you know, has been about in the aftermath of the documents investigation is the differences here between what has happened with Biden's documents investigation, what has happened with Trump's. Does that seem to be, you know, what the White House is going to rely on to, to distinguish themselves from that?
1: Well, that's, that's definitely part of it. There is a sense that they will ultimately be vindicated, essentially, that what happened here was a mistake and that was turned over voluntarily. Uh, very different from what happened with President Trump in those documents where there was a subpoena that uh, was not uh, uh, listened to by President Trump and, and the people around him. But there's also a sense when you talk to the people who've been with Joe Biden over the last four years through the campaign, the first years in the White House, that over and over again, there are things that have flared up that people have said, this is a disaster for Biden. He'll never quite survive this. He'll never be the same. And sure enough, he gets through it. He gets through uh, things that, you know, coming in fourth in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire, gets through uh, the legislative agenda falling apart and is to the place where he is now.
2: Yeah, Isaac, we'll see what happens. Thank you very much. Thank you.
4: All right, today is the day that the U.S. technically hits the debt limit, $31.4 trillion, which is the maximum amount that the federal government is able to borrow to pay its bills and what it's already been spending, now it is up to Congress to raise the limit. And if that concerns you at home, yes, it could be a challenge, even though lawmakers have technically a few months to negotiate a deal before the nation is actually going to potentially default on its debt, something that would be a catastrophe. House Republicans, though, have said they want to tie spending cuts to any deal to raise the nation's borrowing limit. Democrats say the debt ceiling should just be raised with no strings attached. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told lawmakers that the United States could default on its debt as soon as June. She says she's going to have to resort to extraordinary measures to keep that from happening in the meantime. Ahead, we are going to be joined by Brian Deese, who is the director of the White House National Economic Council, to talk about what the White House's view of all of this is.
2: And right now we talk about the latest George Santos lie. The embattled Republican congressman from New York has been making this heartbreaking claim about his late mother for quite some time. Listen.
1: My mom was a 9-11 survivor. Mm. She was in the South Tower, um, and she made it out. She got caught up in the ash cloud. My mom fought cancer till her death.
2: So, CNN learning now that that is not true. Santos' mother, Fatima de Volder, was not a 9 11 survivor. She wasn't even in the country in 2001. New immigration records reveal that she was in Brazil between 1999 and early 2003 and told authorities that she had not been to America during that time while she was filling out a form to report a stolen green card. And that is not all. In just moments, we're going to speak to a veteran who says that Santos scammed him and stole $3,000 that was intended for his dying dog.
4: Also this morning, the United States Coast Guard is tracking a suspected Russian spy ship that has been spotted in international waters off the coast of Hawaii this as tensions between Washington and Moscow over Russia's war in Ukraine are ever present. CNN's Orrin Lieberman is live at the Pentagon. Orrin, what is the Pentagon saying this morning about this ship so close, uh, given it's off the coast of Hawaii?
21: Caitlin, it's the Coast Guard that's been tracking this ship for the course of the past several weeks. And as you point out, what's interesting here is the timing, all the tension between the U.S. and Russia, between Washington and Moscow. The Coast Guard says they've been tracking this ship for several weeks now and believe that it is a Russian intelligence gathering ship, in plain language, a spy ship that's been hanging out in international waters off the coast of Hawaii. Coast Guard has been monitoring this with the help of the Defense Department. It's not illegal or in any way uncommon for Russian intelligence gathering ships, or frankly, other ships and other aircraft to be in international waters or international airspace, gathering intelligence, essentially picking up what they can in international waters. It's the timing here that makes this interesting. And according to the Coast Guard, the length of the time they've been watching this right off the coast of Hawaii, Caitlin.
4: And so how long is that? You know, the, if it is common for something like this to happen. But have we ever seen it get this close before, especially in the last you know, year and a half when we've seen these tensions at an all time high between Russia and the United States?
21: Perhaps not in the last year and a half, but we have seen Russia acting like this in the past. For example, just a couple of years ago, there was a Russian spy ship off the east coast of the US, off of Florida. What made that one different is, again, operating in international waters, but DOD called it out on operating in an unsafe manner, meaning operating without running lights and not responding to commercial vessels. That's where these become incidents and perhaps are even raised at the diplomatic level. Another example on the flip side, just a few weeks ago. We saw a U.S. reconnaissance aircraft intercepted by a Chinese aircraft in international airspace. Again, that's key here. What made that different is uh, the U.S. accused China of acting in an unsafe manner and getting too close to the U.S. aircraft. That's when these rise above simple interactions and become incidents that
2: can have consequences and are raised at diplomatic levels. Caitlin.
4: Absolutely. Oren, thank you.
2: Well, this morning, a shocking resignation by New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern, who was once popular there, for her responses to a shooting tragedy and initial response to COVID.
3: I believe that leading a country is the most privileged job anyone could ever have, but also one of the more challenging. You cannot and should not do it unless you have a full tank, plus a bit in reserve for those unexpected challenges. This summer, I had hoped to find a way to prepare not just for another year, but another term, because that is what this year requires. I have not been able to do that. And so today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election. And that my term as Prime Minister will conclude no later than the 7th of February. Politicians are human. We give all that we can for as long as we can. And then it's time. And for me, it's time.
2: We're joined now by CNN's Christiane Amanpour live from London with more on this. Christiane, good morning to you. So I'm, I was sitting here watching your reaction uh, to her resignation. And I just want to know what was, what's going through your head. What are you thinking?
18: Well, I'm sad actually because she was, you know, there was a work called Jacinda Mania. And it wasn't just because she was a young and, you know, good looking and surprising new prime minister, but she batted away all the sexism and the misogyny, and she launched a new wave of young female leaders, particularly today in Europe and in and in and the north uh, of Europe. And what she was was a completely she came in exactly at the time that Donald Trump did, and she was called and known as the from. Where he was isolationist, she was inclusive. Where he spoke against refugees and foreigners and the other, she was inclusive. And all these things made her incredibly popular. I spoke to her three times. Here's my interview with her on her first global visit. It was to New York in 2017.
3: I am determined to do things differently. I do think you can be both strong and compassionate. I do think success is not just about economic, but about your social indicators of success. And on those measures, you know, we are looking to be world leading. We'll produce next year our a well-being budget, Uh, we're using indicators across cultural, social, um, economic and environmental Uh, and if we succeed we will be amongst the first in the world. That to me is the kind of governance we need.
18: I mean, she was incredible in what she presented and proposed to make New Zealand a bit of a climate refugee status for those who are at risk in the Pacific from rising waters. Her main huge domestic challenge came in uh, about 2018 when there was a massacre by a white supremacist in New Zealand. Some 51 Muslims were killed at a mosque, and she wrote on her paper. They're one of us. In other words, all these people who were killed were part of the New Zealand society. And her, in her scarf and then in a hijab, embracing women there outside the mask, uh, really sort of laid her 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 stamp, if you like. And then on COVID, when she really, you know, came to zero COVID, and she talked about be strong and be kind, you know, that was her. Her mantra and her empathy and what's known as her emotional IQ were incredibly high. But COVID then backfired. You know, there was a, a strong anti-lockdown group. COVID then came back to you know, New Zealand. And I think all of that has, and those challenges, have, have caused her potentially to come to the, to the moment that she's come to now.
4: Yeah, I thought it was notable. She said, you know, I'm not stepping down because the job is hard. She's like, I would have done that two months into the job if that was the case. She just said she didn't feel like she was the right person to lead at the right time. But Christiania, while we're talking about world leaders and just this global impact that they've had, certainly the one that she had. We're also watching President Zelensky, who has been at this world forum in Davos. Yesterday, he gave a speech talking about, you know, the state of the war Now he's saying he does believe that one day that they are going to take back Crimea after it was illegally annexed by Russia. I wonder what has stood out to you from this time with Zelensky on the world stage.
18: Well, to be honest with you, I also interviewed him not so many months ago in Kyiv in November, and I asked him precisely what it would take to end the war and what it would take to so-called make peace. And he laid it out. He put a 10-point plan down, and his people keep saying it to us, and he keeps saying it not until Russia moves back from all the territories, including Crimea. And I think you're seeing now in the West a greater understanding that a lot more weapons need to be given to uh, Ukraine uh, to make their position very clear. If there's any hope that Putin is going to feel the pain of this war and come to his senses around some kind of negotiating table.
2: It's always great to get your perspective, Christiane Aminpour. I love having her on. From London. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, you Christiane. be well. Thank you. Thank you. So next, a new low for George Santos. Now he's accused of stealing thousands from a GoFundMe that could have saved the life of a homeless veteran service dog.
4: And Damar Hamlin is back where he belongs this morning with his teammates. Buffalo Bills say they like the vibe. Nice.
22: It just shows growth, you know. It just shows that um, for his individual battle, um, and he's won, and he's still winning.
4: More CNN this morning to come after the break.
2: You really want to hear about this story, so everyone sit down and listen, because a New Jersey veteran is speaking out against Congressman George Santos, accusing him of stealing thousands of dollars in donations meant to save his dying dog. The Navy veteran, who was homeless at the time, says that his pit bull, Sapphire, developed a tumor, needed life-saving surgery. This was back in 2016. A mutual friend connected him with Santos, saying that Santos was involved with helping and rescuing animals. Okay, so the veteran knew Santos as Anthony Devalder. Santos set up a GoFundMe page for Sapphire. Money poured in more than $3,000. But Rich Ostoff says that he never saw a dime and his dog died months later. So the fundraiser was set up under a charity group that Santos mentioned on his campaign website in a paragraph that has since been deleted. Now, Santos also talked about the charity. So listen to this. Here it is.
1: I mean, we we had a great organization. We were able to save animals, dogs, cats, horses. I mean, at one point, I stuck in eight baby jumping goats in my car.
2: So Ossoff has shared texts that he exchanged with Santos at the time. He told Santos, I am starting to feel like I was... Um, mine for my family and friends' donations. Santos responds, saying that because his dog is not a candidate for surgery, quote, the funds are moved to the next animal in need. Now, in another text, Asaf says, I'm sick of being jerked around, uh, to which Santos replies, in part, remember, it is our credibility that got GoFundMe themselves to contribute. So let's discuss all of this now. Rich Ostoff is here. He is the Navy veteran making these claims against Santos. And Michael Boll, the founder of the New Jersey Veterans Network, who tried to intervene and get the money from Santos. I'm so glad you're both here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Good you. morning. Thank, Thank so you for much. having me. I really us. appreciate you joining us. Oh, so, Rich, I'm going to start with you. Talk us through this
19: because I, I read what happened, but w- what happened in, in your words? Um, I'll start out. Uh, breaking my ankle uh, out in my driveway one day. I I, I broke my ankle, needed multiple surgeries. I became homeless because I couldn't pay my rent for a year and a half. Um, I wound up in 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 a tent with the dog, needed her surgery, went to the vet. Um, Vet said that it was going to cost about $3,000. Santos was a friend of the vet tech that worked there. And uh, she gave me glowing reviews about him. supposedly he seemed like he was on the up and up uh she showed me other pictures of, of other animals that he supposedly had these gofundmes for so i was in desperate situation i was living in a tent didn't have the money to just get the dog taken care of myself so i was ready for the help um and, and you were uh, living with with, with sapphire, sapphire in the tent, tent. yeah yes. uh while we were living there the tumor or the, the lipoma it was called was growing at an exponential rate it was getting huge um but it only took about two to three months to raise the money um A friend brought me up to Santos's uh, veterinarian that he recommended that he actually insisted that I use. He wouldn't let me use my veterinarian. He created problems with another local veterinarian saying that they would not accept his payment form or something along those lines. Um, He was supposed to, he told me in a text message, or maybe it was on the phone, he was going to pay me back for the trip to Long Island to bring the dog up to his veterinarian. He was going to pay me for gas, lunch, tolls. Uh, I was... I was even gullible enough to give him my bank account routing number and uh, my bank account number because he said he was gonna directly put that money for the trip right into my account. That never happened. Never happened. Never happened. Never happened. And that was the first uh, sniff that I got. Of, you said you were gullible, but he never took funds out of your account, right? No. Not at that point, no. No, no, no he never took anything from me. He never took anything No, from no, not from, not out of my account, but out. Did, did you ever see a cent? Never, no, um, at, at that point I started getting frustrated. I knew that I wasn't gonna be getting any money out of this guy. Um, so i kind of I, I irked him a little bit when i told him that i didn't think that uh he was legitimate and then i thought he was like you mentioned before mining my dog and my friends and family's hearts for their money that was the most offensive thing he'd ever heard i'm a scumbag this and that and the other thing and that was where it just all fell through that was to the breaking point where i believe he he, he created the breaking point he wanted me to get mad at him and storm off and give up on it and uh it just evolved from there. Um, he wouldn't answer the calls anymore. And that was when I asked Michael to get involved. Um, he'd already helped me out with a bunch of other veteran stuff. He'd gotten me a bicycle. Um, he'd gotten me, I think, a computer and a few other things. It's stuff I didn't even ask for, he helps me with. And he, 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 he talked to him. Michael talked to him as well. And Michael runs a charity. He One charity head to another charity, charity head. Uh, he thought, figured he could help me out. He could get it worked out for me. I'm, I'm going to keep Michael bringing mm-hmm. it in, but I just thought so this is Sapphire. This Sapphire is about Sapphire. About and yes. that
2: Sapphire's ashes that you uh, brought into the studio. Um, listen, let me let me read this because I um, George Santos refuted the claim. This is what he told me. Okay, he says I have no clue what he is talking about, and the crazy part is that anyone that knows me knows that I'd go to hell and back for a dog and especially a
19: veteran. Well, and go to hell. He, go said, he said go to hell and, he'd go to hell and back. Well, then go to hell, George. Is that your sentiment? <laughs> <It's>,
2: yeah. <laughs> he goes on to say, so this is just more of a pile on effect. I have dozens of people reaching out to me in support, sharing their stories about their dogs and cats uh, that, I ha- that I helped save and rescue.
19: What's your response to that? I don't believe any of it. I don't believe anything that he said about that. I think any other animal that he had up on his website or whatever, probably suffered the same fate as my dog did. Go on, Michael. You, so you stepped in to help him out.
2: I, I honestly thought that. Well, first of all, let me ask you, what do you think of George's response? And then I'll ask you how you got it.
22: It's, it. I mean, just because he helps a few people doesn't mean that he can't be doing this to others. Mm-hmm. It's not the first time someone has pulled fraud and hurt our veteran community. So you believe it's fraud? I know it's fraud. Yeah, Why? It's, it's horrible. Um, I spoke to him. I, I honestly thought this was a mistake. I was so shocked because working as a charity and calling another charity, you never really have these kind of problems. So I told Rich to calm down and relax because I've been working with Rich as his mentor and peer support and just getting him through this. And I really thought it was a mistake. I thought it was just a minor mishap. And I called uh, Anthony DeVolder, a.k.a. George Santos. And I said to him, hey, this is probably a mistake, you know, misunderstanding. And he was not going to help out at all. And I said to him, you have two options. I think that would be a really good idea, to give the money back to all the people who donated, or give the money to a veterinarian in Rich's area. He could use that for a fund with his future dogs and help him pay medical bills. And? And it was, it was no compromising with this gentleman. Yeah. And it was hurtful.
2: Rich, when did you realize, because he, you knew him as Anthony DeVolder, when did you
19: realize that George Santos and Anthony DeVolder were one in the same? Last week. So you just put it together last, last week i started seeing him around christmas time on tv um because i was friends fr- facebook friends with him at the time this uh, fundraiser was going on i'd seen an earlier picture of him uh, probably when he was in his t- early 20s or something like that and he's gained a lot of weight now so he was not very recognizable and he was going by george santos i f- i had a feeling I, I knew him i knew that he had done something i didn't know if he gave me the finger in traffic one day or something but i knew he did something to me and crossed me in my past and it wasn't until last week that uh, a reporter asked him on TV, are you George Santos or Anthony Volder today? Oh, my God. Now I know who he is, where he's at, and how did he rise to where he's at right now? It clicked. Yeah. Oh, my God. What and, do you think of the lies about 9-11 and his mom? and? It's horrible. How do you lie about that? How do you lie about being Jewish? How do you lie? I mean, it's, steal from. he stole money from another dying old man, too, in Brazil. I mean, this guy... He doesn't deserve to be where he's at. He doesn't deserve a government pension. I'm a very personal, private person. I don't have very many friends. I stay at home with my dogs for the most amount of time. I don't want to be out here doing this. I don't like the media attention. I don't like my phone blowing up and stuff. But when I saw him on the news, uh, as Anthony DeVolder, I put two and two together, it ripped the scab off, and it felt like my dog died yesterday. It hurt me that much all over again. Have you tried to reach out to him since? No. Have you tried to reach out? No, there was no reason for it. What would you say to him if you...
2: If he was here now, what would you say to him? Do you have a heart?
19: Do you have a soul? And he probably would lie about that. I mean, I I don't want you to ever hurt anybody like you hurt me again, George. And nobody else should ever have to go through that. I almost killed myself when that dog died. That's why I'm here. I don't want him to be able to do this again. What do you want to happen?
22: You know, one thing about working in the charity is thank God we have people that care. Um, We expect nothing to come out of this from Santos. But I know that America has people here that love veterans, and they've already reached out to us and offered to help. So I'm happy to know that there's people out there that really see the good that we do
19: and really want to show love to our veterans and help them. So I see the good out of this. Santos really took a piece of my heart when when he did this. I, 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 my my opinion of humanity was very, very extremely diminished, crashed into the floor. And the outpouring I've seen over the last two days from people commenting on my story online, especially on Facebook and uh, um, YouTube, everybody is positive about this. I've seen, not seen a single troll. Um, People want to give me money. They want to give me another service dog. They want to help me with dog food and stuff like that. And they have really brought me back up with my value and my, my, my insight in humanity again. Uh, George wrecked it with these people, with their hearts and what they've been offering to me. I trust people again. Yeah. Were you able to pay the bills and all of that? I had to panhandle to have the dog euthanized and uh, cremated.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And listen, there's never,
19: don't take your life. I'm sure you know that. It's a a lot of people. I I was given another service dog three weeks after she died, and that was the best thing that happened in that whole four to six month period. Having another dog to, to, to cuddle up with and cry and let my emotions out. When I have a dog in my life, I will not hurt myself because that is my pride and joy, the one thing in my life that I live for. And I don't want anybody else to be that dog's daddy or mommy. That's my my heart.
2: We're glad that you're here. Thank you. We hope that you're here for a long, long time. Thank you. So thank you very much. We're glad that you got through this and for sharing your story. And hopefully it'll
19: help Thanks obviously. for letting us share. Thank you.
2: Really appreciate it. We'll be right back. As the Buffalo Bills prepare to take on the Cincinnati Bengals Sunday in the AFC Divisional Round of the playoffs, safety DeMar Hamlin is at the team facility almost daily. That's according to his coach. It's only been 18 days since Hamlin suddenly collapsed from a cardiac arrest on the field during a Monday night football game against the same team that they will face on Sunday. His teammates are celebrating having Hamlin around the team again and the positive vibes he has brought with him.
17: You know, a few hugs here and there. Everybody's chomping at the bit to, to talk to him and don't want to overload him with too much uh, right now. But uh, it's, it's been good to see him, um, you know, a smile on his face and, uh, you know, guys
22: love having him back in the building. It just shows growth, you know. It just shows that um, for his individual battle, um, and he's won, and he's still winning. Like, it's a positive thing. And uh, to, to see three just smile and just wave and just, you know, put his hearts up and keep it pushing, you know, it's a, like it's a positive energy
2: bubble that's just floating around the facility. Well, Jessica Fagula, daughter of Buffalo Bill's owner and tennis star, showing her support for Hamlin at the Australian Open. Pictures up on your screen there. The world's third-ranked tennis player wearing Hamlin's number three on her shorts during her straight sets win in the second round. So let's talk about health news right now. We're always, we always hear about the importance of colon cancer screenings. Well, right now, the recommended interval for uh, colonoscopies is every 10 years. But a new study uh, explored whether that interval could be prolonged. So let's bring in CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, to explain this. Sanjay, hello to you. So walk us right. through what this new study found, because this is an interesting and profound change.
23: Yeah, I mean, the, the, when you look at screening studies overall, it's really interesting and really interesting in how they sort of figure out who to screen, when to screen, how long to wait in between screenings, how they look at this data. First of all, set the table, you know, colon cancer, third leading cause of cancer death. Some 50,000 people roughly die of colon cancer every year, but screenings have made a difference, we know that. Let's show, for for starters, what is the recommended screening? Starts as young as 45 now. We've known for a while, 50 to 75, that was really the sweet spot, but they lowered it to 45 uh, a few years ago. That's, that's what we know. Um, if you're older than 75, they say talk to your doctor, understand if the screening will still be valuable for you. But the question has been, you got a negative test in that first screening, how long should you be waiting until you get screened again? And, that, and that's what this study is really about. And again, I find it very interesting. What they did, this, this study came out of Germany. They looked at 120,000 people who had a negative test the first time, got screened again 10 years later, and said, how many uh, subsequent uh, cancers did we find? And what they found, and they separated this by, for men and women, they found for women, 3.6 percent of the time did they find something. For men, 5.2 percent of the time. If they waited an additional four years, it went up a little bit, but not significantly. And I think this is the sort of data now these task forces will be looking at and saying, okay, what is the ideal sort of interval of screening time? And should it change, for example, based on whether you're a woman or a man, how old you are? They found that women were less likely, as you saw, to find a cancer uh, 10 years later. Younger people, the same thing. So this is how they start to look at the data. Nothing's changed right now, to be clear. But this is the sort of data they're looking at to determine that, that crucial interval period.
4: So what's the takeaway here? That, that it could change? That, or what should people be doing right now if they are someone who's coming up for their annual screening?
23: This is There's nothing that's changed. This is a new study that's come out that's basically looked at a large amount of data on that interval period. Uh, the advice, I think, is, is very much still the same because the primary screening, that first screening, still makes a big difference. Uh, and I can show you quickly. I pulled some of these numbers. If you say, look, what is the impact overall of colonoscopies? What you find is that in terms of reducing overall uh, cancer deaths, 40% reduction overall and a 68% reduction in risk of dying from cancer that's not the right uh, full screen here but we can put those numbers up that show you basically what the impact of that primary screening is there it is and that that you should keep in in your mind that that's probably the most important set of data you know when you look at colon cancer screening overall but caitlin to your question based on this new data the interval uh, of, of how long you should wait and whether that should be different for for men and women. That's something we'll wait and see. We'll see what they do with this data.
2: Interesting stuff. Thank you. We always learn a lot from you, Dr. Gupta, and we appreciate you joining us this morning.
23: Thanks, Sanjay. You got it. Thank you.
4: All right. In Washington, they are gearing up for a major fight over raising the nation's borrowing cap. The United States is expected to hit its debt ceiling today, which could have major implications for millions of you and throw the economy potentially into a tailspin. The White House has wanted to say, has said that they would like it to be raised with no strings attached. But Republicans, who, as we all know, have now a slim majority in the House, are demanding spending
6: cuts. And we want to make sure that we have things in there that we have to have. I, for one, will not sign a clean uh, bill raising the debt, the debt limit. We should note Marjorie Taylor Greene is a congresswoman.
4: She does not actually sign the bill. That would be President Biden's job. The Treasury Department has warned that it will start taking extraordinary measures when the United States hits the current $31.4 trillion borrowing cap. But those measures will only buy them some time, just a few months potentially. Joining us now to talk about all of this is the director of the White House National Economic Council, Brian Deese. Brian, good morning and thank you for being here. I think the major question that everyone has is basically what happens now?
17: Well, thanks for having me. Look, this is about economic stability versus economic chaos. You know, if you step back two years ago, it was two years ago this week that President Biden, President-elect Biden at the time, spoke to the nation, outlined an economic strategy. And since then, we've made extraordinary progress in recovering from the pandemic the most jobs created in a two-year period ever, the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years, inflation is now coming down, wages going up. We are making progress. Businesses want to invest in the United States, build clean energy, semiconductor facilities here. We need to keep this progress going. The good news is that because of what Congress did last year, we can make a lot of this progress this year on encouraging this investment in America, encouraging this transition to more stable growth. But we have to not get in our own way. We have to not, uh, not put this all at risk and jeopardize this by putting the full faith and credit of the United States at risk. And so what needs to happen is what Congress has done time and time again, which is prudently do its job raise the debt ceiling. That's happened 78 times since 1960, 78 times right. Congress has done its job. That's going to need to happen again this year.
4: But since we're hitting the limit today, you know what happens now and how much time do you have to, to get Congress to get to an agreement here?
17: Well, Secretary Yellen has explained the extraordinary measures that you mentioned will be initiated today. Uh, that is, a practice that has, uh, has happened in the past, and she has indicated that the exhaustion of those measures uh, will not come uh, any sooner than the beginning of June. But there's real uncertainty about what happens beyond then. But this is an issue where we, uh, waiting doesn't benefit anybody. Uh, this is about certainty and stability for the US economy. Uh, And so what needs to happen is is Congress needs to, again, do do what it has done in the past. Uh, This is actually not that complicated. Uh, This happened three times under our predecessor. uh, And uh, there is plenty of space and time to talk about how to continue the progress on the fiscal side as well. I would note that over the past two years, we've seen the most deficit reduction in nominal terms in American history. The deficit's down $1.7 trillion. Uh, There's plenty of opportunity to continue to invest in the country and bring the deficit down. This debt limit is a separate issue. This is about paying the bills and honoring the obligations that Congress has already passed. And that's what needs to happen.
4: So is the White House going to negotiate with Republicans on this?
17: We are going to make very clear what needs to happen. Uh, As I said, this is not that complicated. This is not about new initiatives or new opportunities. This is about meeting the obligations that this country has already made uh, to the commitments that this country has made. The bedrock of U.S. economic stability and, frankly, global economic stability is the commitment that the United States honors the obligations that it already made. That's what this is about. It's not complicated. It needs to happen. It doesn't need to uh, have uh, uh, conditions or anything else attached to it. And we can continue to have conversations about all manner of economic issues. Uh, but this is an issue that we can't take uh, we can't play games with. Uh, and, you know, I was here in 2011. Even just the specter that the United States might not uh, honor its obligations does damage to the economy. We saw a downgrade of the U.S. Uh, debt in 2011. These are things that take years to recover from. And in some cases, it might be impossible to ever recover. You could end up with higher borrowing costs in the United States forever. These are things that we just can't allow. Uh, we can't have We need to continue the economic progress we've made. And the good news is we are making real progress. We are better positioned than almost any country in the world to continue this economic recovery.
4: Brian, is the White House's position still that there should be no conditions attached to this?
17: Yes, that's our position. Uh, And uh, and again, it's consistent with how Congress has approached this issue historically as well. This has happened under Republican presence. It's happened under Democratic presence. It needs to happen again.
4: Yeah, we saw how obviously Republicans raised it several times uh, under former President Trump. But if Democrats negotiate a deal here with Republicans, is President Biden going, going to accept that, going to sign that?
17: Look, there's a lot of hypotheticals. I just want to be very clear. This is what needs to happen. We need to see the debt limit raised. We need to take the specter of that uncertainty uh, out, of, uh, out of view. And we need to focus on how we can keep this economic recovery going. As I said, good news on that front, good news for the American people. We're seeing prices come down, wages, uh, real wages, uh, a lot of investment opportunity in America. That's where we need to train our focus. And we need to take this uncertainty off the table.
4: Does the White House think that the president has the authority to raise it on his own?
17: Look, uh, we are solely focused on the way that this has always been done and the way that this needs to be done now which is this is congress's obligation this is a basic fundamental obligation that congress has to meet the commitments that congress has already made and the united states has already made on behalf of the american people and that's that that is our that is our 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 sole focus right now
4: Okay. Well, Senator Schumer said that he believes that may be an open question, whether or not President Biden does have that authority. Brian, before I let you go, I have to ask you about the documents investigation that is underway. Is it affecting work inside the West Wing?
17: Not at all. Uh, We are totally focused on the uh, economic issues at hand. As this conversation underscores, we've got plenty to focus on. Uh, And frankly, two years in, if we look at where we now need to go in terms of implementing uh, the president's economic agenda. We've got an extraordinary opportunity this year. That's, that's uh, our focus, and uh, it's, not, it's not affecting that at all.
4: All right. Director of, National Econ- of the National Economic Council, Brian Deese, thank you for joining us on such an important issue that could affect so many people.
2: Okay. Thank you. Very, very good interview. Um, they've got a lot on their plate, especially when it comes to the debt ceiling and the, um, the economy, and also, say, the union's Coming up as well.
4: Yeah, they have a lot going on.
2: Yeah. All right. So, uh, how will LeBron James' legacy be impacted by the player empowerment era of the NBA? Bomani Jones in the house. Uh, he has a few thoughts, and here uh, he, I want to hear his take on that and the new season of his show.
4: More CNN this morning to come after the break.
2: Over the last 15 years or so, the NBA has become more of a players league rather than the focus being on the owners and teams like years past. Now, the term player empowerment was popularized after LeBron James decided to take his talents to South Beach to play alongside Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosch because all three players wanted to create a super team. And it it worked. With the Miami Heat winning two titles during their four years together, but the definition of player empowerment hasn't always been clear. Season two of uh, the of Game Theory with Bomani Jones it kicks off. um, Game what is it? (laughs) Game Theory with Bomani Jones kicks off and explores uh, what player empowerment really means and the impact that it will have on LeBron James' legacy. Watch this.
24: Now, who told you LeBron's getting too old for this basketball thing? LeBron's officially become the old man at the club. He's staying around long enough to get the Lakers that coveted 12 seed. Real talk. Only thing I missed, that full head of hair. Well, that ain't coming back. The game theory is we don't miss.
2: All right, so the second season of Game Theory with Bomani Jones premieres tomorrow on HBO and HBO Max, and joining us now is Bomani Jones. Bomani, um, you had me at hello on Game Theory. I, very few shows that I like right out of the gate, and yours is, is one of them. First of all, hello. In this first episode uh, of season, of the second season, you say that player empowerment hasn't been properly
24: defined. So what is your definition? Well, The question is whether player empowerment has actually existed in the ways that we think about it. Right. So after LeBron makes the move to go to Miami with the decision. Right. And there was a lot around it. The decision in particular was the big thing that jumped out to people. After there was such a backlash, there was a move to say that this was an idea of empowerment, that this is players taking control of what's going on. Well, what happened was LeBron was playing for Cleveland and the management was not very good. And he realized that he wasn't going to win with bad management. So he goes and calls Dwayne Wade and says, hey, how about I come to Miami? Maybe we get somebody else down here. And then the Miami franchise is like, wow, that sounds like a great idea. We can build around that. How much of that is actually power, though? Right. He worked out a contract. He got to the end of the contract. He went to go sign somewhere else to play. Good for him. But in the midst of the backlash, I think on the other side, there was a need for a lot of people to then come up and try to make that into more of a revolutionary act than it actually was. When in reality, the thing that made it feel revolutionary was just that it made people mad. And I feel like making people (laughs) mad is a low threshold for defining your revolution.
4: (laughs) But you mean, you, you were saying that the bar was kind of set low before that, and that's why it seemed so different to people before. Why why wasn't this something that we saw previously?
24: Well, because I think that people really thought about, especially with free agency, and we have to remember that the concept of free agency is really pretty new when you think about it. This isn't something that you've had in sports since the 1940s, right? You go look at the different sports. The NFL didn't achieve true free agency, for example, until the 1990s. So the idea for so many people had been you get to the end of the deal, and then you wind up staying with the team that you were always with. There's a loyalty argument and everything else. But in the NBA, there was a previous set of incentives that allowed them to pay players more to stay with those teams. Then they put in a max salary that said, "Okay, teams can only pay you but so much. Well, then that made staying feel a lot less important because you could not break the bank by doing that. That's the thing that people weren't used to. So a dude from Ohio who played for the team in Ohio, looking up and chucking Ohio the deuce, a place where, by the way, they tend to be really big on you staying home, and even if you leave, you come back. It hit people, like, on those basic levels there. But prior to this, I do think, yeah, a lot of people were inclined to stay with the teams that they were on. Something changed a little bit. But again, changing a job, that's not changing the world. Yeah. Okay, me. I don't know if we're going to fight on this or if we're going to agree on this. Let's talk about
2: woke in the NFL because you say you're looking at the NFL this season and you say that the NFL is more woke than people think. I want to know how so, but you know that that term has been co-opted. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't yeah, actually yeah. mean well, what people have yeah, said. Well that's the
24: thing. Now. Like we you we use woke in our internal discussions facetiously. I right. wish they hadn't quite sent that across to y'all because it right. makes us look a little bit crazy. But the thing about the NFL and social justice, particularly in the last two years and change, they've done a much better job on those things than people have realized. And as we've gotten into our research and seeing this, our question is why is it that people don't realize how much the NFL and the players coalition has actually done. So something to keep in mind, the 2022 election that we just saw come around, the NFL had logos on the field for people to register to vote. Barack Obama jumps on the Manning cast with Peyton and Eli Manning on ESPN the night before the election to tell people where to vote. Now, In theory, that's a nonpartisan act, but we all understand there's one party that wants more people to vote and the other one that's like, hey, we're going to lose if y'all keep doing that. That's the NFL that did that. The NBA was not nearly as out front about people voting and those sorts of things in this last election cycle. The NFL has kept a lot of the imagery on the field that was post-George Floyd that we've seen the NBA, for example, take back. So there are things that the NFL has done and there are people that work in the NFL office who have wondered why people don't give them more attention. But then there's also reason to wonder if the NFL actually wants that much attention on those efforts, perhaps for fear of offending some people who don't think that stuff is nearly as cool as I think that it is. So that's something in one of our episodes in February that we're going to explore is what the NFL is actually doing on social justice and why exactly it is that you and I might not know that much about it. No.
2: Okay, so I, we're amazing. good on
24: that one. We're good. I like the outfit this morning. I like appreciate that. Mind. Very nice.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Bimani. For Bimani.
24: Bimani. All right.
4: You can watch season two, the premiere of Game Theory with Bamani Jones on HBO and HBO Max tomorrow. Also this morning, in a newly unsealed deposition former President Trump mistook a picture of one of the women accusing him of sexual assault, who he said he didn't know and wasn't his type, for his ex-wife. I'll tell you more next.
2: Good morning. The lies continue. This time, George Santos caught making up a story about his mother being in the South Tower on 9-11. This, of course, as Republicans reward him in Congress.
4: Emergency measures are set to be in place today as the nation is hitting its debt limit, why Congress may be playing with fire.
2: A warning to Vladimir Putin. Ukraine's president says his country will take back Russian, seized Crimea, as the US reportedly considers helping them do it.
4: Will Alec Baldwin be charged in the shooting that killed a filmmaker on set? The decision coming just a few hours from now.
2: Florida Governor Ron DeSantis blocking an AP African-American studies course because he says it breaks the law. We'll discuss. CNN This Morning starts right now. But we begin this hour with yet another apparent lie from George Santos, a Republican congressman from New York who fabricated just about everything on his resume, has been caught again, this time lying about his late mother. Santos has long claimed that his mother was in the South Tower of the World Trade Center on 9-11 and later died from cancer. But new immigration records obtained by CNN confirm Santos' mother was in Brazil between 1999 and 2003 and was never in the U.S. and now a Navy veteran from New Jersey, is accusing Santos of stealing $3,000 from a GoFundMe account that was supposed to be used to save the life of his dog. Santos denies the claims. And then moments ago, though, the veteran, Rich Ossoff, shared his 2016 encounter with Santos on CNN this morning. He says the ordeal nearly cost him his life. George Santos refuted the claim. This is what he told me, okay? He says, I have no clue what he is talking about and the crazy part is that anyone that knows me
19: knows that I'd go to hell and back for a dog and especially a veteran. Well then go to hell. S- go he said, on. He said go to hell and, he'd go to hell and back? Well then go to hell, George. Is that your sentiment? <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: He goes on to say, so this is just more of a pile on effect. I have dozens of people reaching out to me in support, sharing their stories about their dogs and cats uh, that,
19: I ha- that I helped save and rescue. What's your response to that? I don't believe any of it. I don't believe anything that he said about that. I think any other animal that he had up on his website or whatever probably suffered the same fate as my dog did. What would you say to him if, you, if he was
2: here now? What would you say to him? Do you have a heart?
19: Do you have a soul? And you probably would lie about that. I mean, I, I don't want you to ever hurt anybody like you hurt me again, George. And, and nobody else should ever have to go through that. I almost killed myself when that dog died. That's why I'm here. I don't want him to be able to do this again.
4: Powerful words coming from that veteran and coming up. We're going to talk to former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, about the new revelations about George Santos. Also this morning, though, on the international front, a battle is brewing between two allies over the fate of Ukraine and the weapons it is getting. The U.S. is now urging Germany to send their tanks to Ukraine ahead of an expected offensive by Russia in the coming months, once it becomes spring. This, as President Zelensky has been making a definitive declaration this morning as he speaks to world leaders virtually Bluntly saying that Ukraine will retake Crimea, which, of course, was illegally annexed by Russia nearly a decade ago. Both Russia and Ukraine now claim ownership over the land. It has become this symbolic battleground in the war between these two countries. Fred Pleitgen is live for CNN this morning in keep. Fred, of mm. course, the big question is whether or not this could actually happen and what this looks like. Does it seem like that's, that's a realistic goal for mm. Zelensky to have as they are mounting this offensive?
25: Well, it certainly is the Ukrainians' goal, Caitlin. The Ukrainians have consistently been saying that they do want to take back Crimea. But of course, you're absolutely right. It really looked like something that seemed unrealistic for an extended period of time. But certainly, if we look at some of the gains that the Ukrainians have been making, especially towards the end of last year down in the south in the Kherson area, you can actually see it really well on that map that we have out there right now. If they gain a lot more territory down south there, they could be knocking on Crimea's door. And also, they could be cutting off Russia's land bridge to Crimea. And I think that's one of the things that uh, President Zelensky was also alluding to. He said that if Ukraine gets the weapons, then they will take back Crimea. It's definitely something that they want to do. Now, The Kremlin has already reacted to all of this. In fact, the Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, he said that he believes that Zelensky simply wants to see Russia eradicated off the map. And so the Russians obviously already playing on this. But the Ukrainians definitely saying, look, this is Russia's war of aggression. Russia illegally took Crimea before that. The Ukrainians say it is theirs. The international community says that it is Ukraine's and the Ukrainians definitely want to take it back, guys.
4: Yeah, it's striking to see the U.S. even now willing to consider something like that. Obviously, Russia doesn't want that to happen. But, Mm. Fred, right now, you know, when we talk about what weaponry Ukraine is getting, there is this battle, it seems like, playing out over tanks. And the Germans saying, according to the Wall Street Journal, that they will send tanks if the U.S. does. Obviously, that would just be diplomatic cover. What is really going to happen? Are they actually going to get these Mm. German tanks in Ukraine?
25: It is so interesting. I'll tell you guys, tomorrow, of course, is that big meeting in Rammstein where the contact group is going to meet. And, and a lot of people are expecting that possibly main battle tanks could be part of the equation then. The Germans basically hold the key to all that. They manufacture a battle tank called the Leopard 2, which a lot of European countries have. And it's also ones that the Ukrainians want because they're pretty easy to maintain. Those are the ones that Zelensky wants. And he says that the Germans need to do that quickly. Let's listen to what uh, Volodymyr Zelensky said.
24: I would like to thank again for the assistance to our partners, but at the same time, There are times where we shouldn't hesitate or we shouldn't compare when someone says, I will give tanks if someone else will also share his tanks. I'm um, strong in Europe and I can share if someone outside of, of Europe will contribute as well. I don't think this is the right strategy to go with.
25: And guys, a lot of European countries want to give these Leopard 2 tanks. The Germans aren't quite there yet. They say they'll do it if the Americans give main battle tanks right now or, or, or earlier today. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, he was in Germany to try and convince the Germans uh, to finally give the go ahead to allow a lot of European countries to give those main battle tanks to Ukraine, guys.
4: Yeah, all eyes will be on if that pressure works. Fred Pleitkin and Kiev. thank you so much.
25: We turn now
2: to new insight into a deposition of former President Donald Trump that was unsealed by a U.S. district court in Manhattan. According to the transcripts, at one point, Trump mistakes a picture of the woman accused of sexual assault for his ex-wife. The woman, I should say, accused of sexual assault as his ex-wife. Kara Scannell is here with the details now. So, good morning to you. What did we learn? We learned a lot in this unsealed deposition, right? Yeah.
13: So, this is the second de—the depo- uh, second transcript that has been unsealed from this deposition that took place in October. And just to remind people, this was E. Jean Carroll, the former magazine columnist. She had sued former President Trump uh, for defamation, saying that you know, based on his claims, when he denied her allegation that he raped her in the Bergdorf-Goodman department store in the mid-1990s. So in this latest transcript that was unsealed last night, uh, Trump has showed a black and white photo of him with his wife, Ivana Trump, Carol and Carol's husband. And he points or he's asked about who's in the photo. And when he looks at Carol, he says, oh, that's Marla Maples, my, my wife. Now, he was photographed in the photo with his then-current wife, Ivana Trump. So, you know, some people might think that this could, you know, undermine or it certainly counters his claim that she was not his type. That was one of these defamatory statements. He said he wouldn't have raped her. She wasn't his type. Um, so now it's a, it's a blunder here where he actually points to Carol and his lawyer has to correct him and say, that's Carol, that's not Marla. Um, you know, also in these depositions, he's asked, you know, numerous times. Remember, there have been numerous allegations of sexual assault or unwanted kisses from women over the years. And Trump says that he's never uh, kissed anyone that didn't want it. He said he's never assaulted anyone. So, you know, this is this is his his truth that he's putting out there. But of course, this ultimately will go to a jury.
2: Yeah. But even if that is a defense, someone is not your type. But but I I understand. I I get what they're saying is, you know, if you didn't think she was attractive, you just identified her as your ex-wife who you married because for obvious reasons, there was something that attracted you uh, to her. Thank you, Kara Scannell. We appreciate that.
4: Also this morning, something to watch. Prosecutors are set to announce whether or not criminal charges are going to be filed in connection to that 2021 Rust movie set shooting. Of course, it was the cinematographer who was shot and killed by a live round from a prop gun that was being held by the actor Alec Baldwin. He claims he did not pull the trigger. CNN's Josh Campbell is live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Josh, what are we expecting today? Is Baldwin actually going to face charges here potentially?
26: Yeah, good morning to you, Caitlin. It is certainly a possibility. You know, in a report that was issued by state officials here in New Mexico, signed off by the state's chief medical investigator, they determined that there was no compelling evidence that this weapon was intentionally loaded with a live round and fired. The question, though, has been, is it criminal? And that is what the prosecutor here and a special counsel who was brought in to investigate will be announcing this morning. Now, there are three uh, key potential targets of prosecution. They include Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who was the armorer on the set. She was a person responsible for firearms safety. There's also Dave Halls, who was the assistant director who had handled the weapon. And of course, actor Alec Baldwin himself, who had the gun in his hand when that fatal shot was fired. Now, I previously sat down with the district attorney here. She talked about some of the potential charges. She also talked about the pressure that she feels running an investigation involving such a prominent celebrity in a case that has literally been watched around the world. Have a listen.
7: If we're talking about felonies that would cover an unintentional killing, um, meaning one that did not have a mens rea, which is an intent to kill, is in New Mexico is called uh, involuntary manslaughter. When we're talking about potentially charging someone or not charging someone, that's where we have to start our legal analysis is, can we get to that bar of somehow proving that reckless standard, that willful disregard? I know that there's pressure out there. I do not feel that pressure. I will not make my decision based on that pressure. The decision will be based on the law and the evidence, period.
26: So we'll be watching for three potential outcomes here, a felony charge. uh, There could be what's uh, called a petty misdemeanor here, negligence using a firearm, or they could simply close the case altogether, determine that no charges are warranted. We'll find out soon, Caitlin.
4: Yeah, it's certainly captured national attention. Josh Campbell will be paying attention to that. Thank you.
2: All right, I want to take you now live to France. We're looking at live pictures of protests in Paris where angry workers are taking to the streets nationwide over the government's plans to raise the retirement age by two years to 64 Eight of France's largest unions, including transportation, police and education, have called for strikes and protests against the proposed pension system reform. Straight now to CNN's Melissa Bell, live in Paris in the middle of the protest, by the way. Melissa, hello to you. What are you seeing?
5: Well, this is how it looks that the the beginning of that protest is uh, just uh, coming up. And you can see already the turnout is impressive. All of those balloons represent Don. Uh, all of the major unions here in France. And I think what's so impressive about today's strike action is the breadth of it, as you were saying. Private sector workers, public sector workers, teachers, refinery workers, all walking off the job. Transportation severely disrupted here in France. The important thing for the unions as well, is the first time the eight major unions have gone together in such a unified way in more than a decade here in France the impressive thing for them as well is the amount of people they're going to be able to get on the street. So this is about to take off from the Plaza de la République uh, and it's going to head all the way to Nation. Uh, they say, the unions, that they hope to get more than a million people out on the streets of France today. And the French authorities are taking no chances, Don. They've got 10,000 policemen uh, trying to keep the peace, with the interior minister saying that they expect that about 1,000 of the protesters out here today could turn violent Don.
2: All right, Melissa Bell, live for us in the middle of the protest in Paris. Thank you very much.
5: All right, this
4: morning President Biden is still under fire for those classified documents that were found in his private home and office. But just how common is the quote spillage of classified documents? We have new CNN reporting that you'll wanna hear next. More CNN this morning to come after the break. All right, this morning we got some new CNN reporting about how just common it could be for classified documents to be outside of the protected places and spaces they're supposed to be in. Experts in this matter say it is known as classified spillage. And in most cases, there are simple mistakes that are not typically charged as crimes. CNN's Katie Bo Lillis has been looking into this, into this, and she joins us now. All right, Katie, this has been a big question, of course, not just in light of what happened with Trump's documents, but also now with Biden. You know, is it an accepted thing? How common is this? What is your reporting found?
10: Yeah, Caitlin, this kind of of classified spillage happens almost literally every day. And most of the time, it's completely accidental. An employee accidentally takes home a classified document in a briefcase. In one example that we were told, the employee found a classified document that had been accidentally attached to an unclassified travel itinerary. He slept with it under his pillow for a night, returned it the next day, and that was that. Most of these cases are dealt with administratively, internally, with a simple conversation with the security officer at the agency in question. Now, of course, in more severe cases, there can be penalties such as losing your security clearance or even being fired. But part of the reason this is so common, Caitlin, is simply the law of large numbers. There are over 4 million security clearance holders floating around out there. And some national security officials will also acknowledge that the U.S. government has a pretty big problem with overclassification. There are just millions and millions and millions of pieces of classified information, not all of which are exquisite.
4: Yeah, I've heard that from so many officials, Democrats and Republicans talking about that, the idea of just basically everything being classified. Okay, but you talk about this one person who who accidentally took something home. They slept with it under their pillow to basically guard it and make sure it was okay. But when it comes to the president and now two presidents being looked into this intent, I imagine plays a massive role in how these things are handled.
10: Yeah, the question is, when does it go from something that's handled administratively to something that the agency refers to the Justice Department for investigation and possible prosecution? And the the, the answer is there's no hard and fast rule. It really depends on the cases, the case itself, the facts and the circumstances. Um, what we have seen in some of these more high-profile cases of prosecution is that intent to mishandle the information is really the key factor here. Did you intend to hoard it, sell it, leak it? But as one CIA lawyer that we spoke to, or former CIA lawyer that we spoke to, who said the decision for agencies to make that referral to the DOJ, it's more art than science, Caitlin.
4: Yeah, I can think of a few lawyers and prosecutors who have intent on their mind these days when it comes to classified documents. Katie Bo Lillis, thanks so much for joining us for that reporting. Thank well, you.
2: One of them may be this guy. Let's bring in someone who would know about this. This is this former Republican congressman, Adam Kinzinger, who is now a CNN senior political commentator. I don't know if you're a senior yet, but... <laughs> I'm getting anyway, gray. Get It it's a, you heard himself. with Katie Bolos, here, the yeah. conversation between um, uh, Katie and, and Caitlin. Do, have you? Did you witness spillage? Like, what is your assessment? Your take on all of it?
27: I mean, to me, it's unique because I mean, like, spillage
2: the, is like I know it's, it's accidentally kind of a, sort of getting yeah. out there inadvertently.
27: It's like thinking. here you go. Here's a here's a TSSCI document I lost. No, I, look, I'm not used to. For me, the two areas I had classified information was Congress and the military. Both were very controlled. So Congress, you're either in a SCIF or you're in, which is the sensitive compartmentalized, I don't remember what it stands for, but it's basically where nobody can listen in. And it's where classified info can go. Or a big room, like when we'd have these massive briefings. There's no way you could take anything out of there. I mean, in my mind, the only way I could have gotten classified information out of anything is to memorize it. Or, you know, write it down and nobody see me. It was hard. And then on the military side, we'd go into the vault, which is where you learn whether it's the nuclear mission I did when I was a tanker pilot or some of the weapon system of your enemy. You can't get stuff out of there either. So So I don't know how it happens. You never inadvertently like, oh, my gosh, just by accident taking something home. I don't even know how I could if I wanted to. Because it's just like if you do have access to anything, you're usually being stared at by people making sure you don't walk out of there with that. I guess if you're a person that's handling that, like you're the, I guess, the handler of the information for people like me, I could see how it would be possible, but it's still hard for me to really see how that would work out, especially yeah. for it to be common.
4: Well, and the question is also skiffs. you know, this sensitive compartmented Something.
27: informational information. facility, I think, go. is yeah. what it is. I We've hope. dealt a lot with I this for the last is, few or,
4: years. Yeah. One of those is, you know, where the president is. He has access to a lot of skiffs. Former President Trump is now making this claim. um, He's zeroing in on the 48 empty folders that were marked as classified, as containing classified information that were found when the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago. He is basically saying that what would happen is they would have briefings in the Oval Office. People would come in. They'd bring a folder of classified information. When they were done, they would take the classified documents back, but he would keep the folder, he said, sometimes as a cool keepsake. From your understanding and your experience, is there ever a situation where an intelligence officer goes into a briefing, has his classified documents in a folder, and then leaves without the folder and just the documents?
27: I've never seen it. I'm not, you know, I was never president. Maybe there's a moment where he says, I want to keep the folder. And if he says that, I, I guess the folder itself wouldn't be classified. But I, if I was a briefer, or from the behavior of any briefer I've seen, they walk in, they give you the information, they make sure they have everything when they walk out, and usually you're in, like, real earnest to help them make sure they remember that stuff because you don't want to be responsible. So you're very careful to say, hey, like, was this classified? I took some notes here. Are those classified? Take them if they are. Isn't yeah, different when you're president vice president? It's like they can, hey,
2: just kind of grab what they want or you know, yeah, I, I, mean, I it deliver to them. In the, you know,
27: you yeah, know what I mean? uh, Yeah, I mean, look, I, to end up with classified information, you know, near your Corvette, or at Mar-a-Lago, something has to be done differently than anything I've experienced. So I think when you're president, yeah, it's probably a little more like, hey, the White House is secure. Your residence is secure. Still, though, it's uh, I think we definitely need to get a little better at this. Can I um, move on to another subject? I want to talk sure. to you about George Santos.
2: Yeah. I don't know if you saw the interview that I did with the former veteran who lost his I got his to meet him, yeah. It. Yeah, you got to meet him. Okay, so listen, I, let's play a little bit of it, and then I'll get your take on it. Here it is. Okay, so don't have it. Basically, he's saying that he was scammed out of $3,000 at a GoFundMe on that George Santos, you know, didn't live up to his promises. The guy said he lost his dog, he wanted to take his life, and he says George Santos basically to him is a big liar and should face the consequences.
27: Of course. I mean, look, it's, it's like I, I saw this the beginning of this story kind of forming yesterday, and I'm like, of course. Yeah, of course he took a dog for money, right? I mean, George Santos, look, do politicians stretch the truth? Probably sometimes, right? Probably. Resumes? <laughs> Maybe, right? I have never seen an instance where somebody made up their entire life history to the point where folks are even questioning if his name is really George Santos. i am gonna tell you what. You know, you, you go in, you lie. That's one thing. It's bad. You represent 700,000 people. You start stealing money from a dog with cancer. I mean, my goodness. I think that just shows the desperation and the con that's going on here.
4: And Don's interview with him was so great because it shows the human impact mm-hmm. of lies and, and what kind of impact it has. I mean, this guy was talking about how he was so sad after after the dog left him that he, he contemplated suicide. It was really hard to hear. Um, but I think the bigger question is not how this reflects on George Santos. It's how it reflects on Republican leaders. And, and just to give you an example, this is what Republicans on Capitol Hill have been saying about George Santos in recent days.
2: He hasn't committed a crime. He hasn't been indicted on anything at this point. And in this country, you're innocent until proven guilty. Well, I don't condone
16: what he said, what he's done. I I don't think anybody does. But that's not my role. He was elected. The
12: one thing I do know is you you apply the Constitution equal to all Americans.
23: The voters of his district have elected him. I mean,
4: he's... Accused in recent days of defrauding a veteran and lying about his mom's presence on 9 11. What does it say to you how Republicans are talking about
27: Trump? I just, teenagers? I never get sick of, in, in a bad way, I mean this, I never get sick of watching people. React one way because somebody's in one party mm-hmm. and then another way when they're in a different party. Right. I guarantee you, my former colleagues on the GOP side, if this was a Democrat, right they would be in front of every camera saying he needs to resign. He's defrauded the American people. And here, because the, it's such a tight margin and because the only thing that matters evidently is just passing whatever agenda you actually have, mm-hmm. um, you go out and defend it. Look, the GOP has a truth problem. I think we all know that. This is not helping their case with saying they're a party of truth. And uh, I don't, they're gonna have, this is only gonna grow. This is only gonna snowball, and we'll learn new things every day.
2: We spent a lot of time with you, but I think it's important because to get the other person's response in here, this is what he told me. He says, I have no clue what he's talking about, meaning the veteran. Uh, And the crazy part is that anyone that knows me knows I'd go to hell and back for a dog, and especially a veteran. So this is just more of the pile on effect. I have dozens of people reaching out to me in support, sharing their stories. Uh, again, I think the overall thing is he thinks this is a pile on effect, and all these stories are just people who are after him. Do you see it that way quickly?
27: Well, no. I mean, I, I, I tend to think the veteran has way more credibility. But the bottom line is every question now, he's going to be questioned because he's shown he lies. And he should come out and tell his story. Oh, no one should sure. tell his
2: story like yep.
4: him. I'm Kinsinger. thank you. Yeah. Good, thanks. Good to see you. All right. Also this morning, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has banned a new advanced placement class on African-American studies, claiming it breaks a law. What law? We'll talk about that.
2: So this morning, Governor Ron DeSantis refusing to approve an advanced placement African-American studies course to be taught in Florida high schools. In a letter to the college board, the Florida Department of Education, which is part of DeSantis administration writes, as presented, the content of this course is inexplicably contrary to Florida law and significantly lacks educational value. Well, DeSantis believes the course promotes critical race theory, which he recently banned from schools under the STOP WOKE Act. In case you were wondering, the acronym stands for wrong to our kids and (laughs) employees. Okay, it prohibits any instruction uh, on race or diversity that suggests a person's status as either privileged or oppressed is necessarily determined by his or her race, color, national origin, or sex. Sarah Seidner joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Lacks educational value. What is, again, wrong to our kids and employees? What is that?
28: So here's the thing. This is an, an advanced placements course. That's what AP stands for. Um, and this group that approves the AP courses is the same one that, you know, it approves the SAT. So this is a group that's been around for a very long time. And their job is to sort of approve the curriculum um, for AP classes and uh, also administering the SAT. And so what you have here is a pilot program that 60 schools have Looked at, have tried. Uh, The the one issue is that it hasn't been made publicly available. Um, I would love to get a a, a copy of it and get my hands on it. I think a lot of people would like to see exactly what it is that um, the the Florida Board of Education has a problem with. Um, But here's the, the big issue let's just call a spade a spade. It's about CRT, it's about critical race theory. And this whole thing has been ginned up between those who believe that it is teaching, there's a fear that it's teaching white kids to feel bad about being white um, and teaching black kids that they are naturally oppressed. That is the fear. But that is not what critical race theory is. It is very specific and it is about and it's usually used in law schools in college. But if you look at a, the advanced placement classes, those classes you get college credits if you pass the test. So you could argue either way on this. You could say, look, the AP test is so that kids can think critically. It's critical race theory, not critical race proof, right? And so this is one of those things where it's like everything is getting conflated. Critical race theory is just a catch-all for anything that someone thinks like woke. is bad. Like woke. Um, and, and so this is where. But there is a real concern on parents' part about how children are being taught when it comes to race. There is a fear that white children are going to be treated differently, going to be treated worse because they are considered the oppressors, and that black children are going to be treated as victims. And that is a real concern of parents. Like, we should not kind of dismiss that because it's, it's there now. But all of this whole critical race theory argument and this woke argument was actually sort of, Created. And I want to let you meet the person who really put this on the map. He put it into the president's mouth. He put it, he was on Fox over and over and over again, hammering this idea of critical race theory and where this all came from. This did not come from sort of parents and the grassroots level from parents. Let me, let me let you hear what he says. You tweeted that it is, you are going to create something toxic when it comes to the way people think about critical race theory. That's what you yourself tweeted. Isn't that bad for America? That's inaccurate,
14: yeah. Critical race theory is intrinsically toxic. I'm merely revealing it, and I'm merely exposing it, and I'm merely creating a framework for people to understand it. But it's not that I've turned critical race theory toxic.
28: But in his tweet, he literally says, we're going to create this, make this toxic and, and use it as a catch all for all things that we don't like. And so that's a real problem when you look back at all of this, because people were oppressed in this country. And should that not be taught? I think we can teach that. And I think people can learn from that. And you're supposed to be thinking critically. So I, 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 there's this whole argument that is being made, but this is an advanced placement course. So what if critical race theory is in it? Who cares? Teach kids to think, not what to think.
4: And you know who's put at the crossfires of all of this or the crosshairs of all of this is educators.
28: Absolutely, absolutely. And they're suffering with this because they're afraid they're gonna break the law by saying the wrong thing. What a place to be in, but that's where we are.
4: Yeah, oh, they don't make enough for that. Yeah. No, it's. <laughs> My mom's true. a teacher too. So it's true. true. It's She'll true. My tell family you. are
28: teachers too.
2: It's it's hard. So different than I was when I was in school <laughs> back in the dark ages. <laughs> we were writing out things on scrolls. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
12: Thank
2: you, Sarah Seidner. Always a pleasure. Good to see you. No okay, egg prices across the country appear to be cooling down after doubling last month for what they cost a, a year ago. Next, we're going to talk to There he is, Chef Bobby Flay, on how it's impacting how much you are paying at restaurants.
4: All right, as many of you know, all of you who are going to the grocery store, egg prices have been up across the United States, but now potentially cooling down a little bit this week after they peaked in December at more than double what you were paying for eggs a year ago. A lot of us, though, are still feeling the pain about this and the egg prices at the grocery stores. Higher prices might also mean you pay more when you go to restaurants because owners are trying to battle the rising cost on top of inflation and a worker shortage. Joining us now is someone who knows all about all of these issues, the chef and restaurateur and Food Network personality, Bobby Flay. Bobby, I mean, this is a big question because, you know, Donna, we've been talking about egg prices with Poppy all week and the fact that they're so high, but they're affecting restaurants because they make other food that you're making go up as well. So what are you seeing?
29: Well, I mean, you know, eggs just happen to be the, uh, the next food commodity in line to have its, you know, its moment of, you know, giant price increase and also scarcity. I mean, and, you know, one causes the other. And so, you know, th- these things are, are cyclical. You know, we've seen avocados and bacon and beef, you know, have their moment, um, you, know, you know, months prior and they have, you know, they have now, you know, you know, gotten back in line. So it's like, it's like anything else, you know, at the moment, that's what, that's what, what's happening with eggs. And in fact, I thought we were going to see a dollar per egg price at some point. But It seems like it's actually sort of um, it's coming back in, which is, a, leveling. which is a good sign.
2: It's leveling out. But then, yeah. but in the moment, it does have an impact. And you talk about, you know, fruit and that there was, um, you had um, um, production issues or what have you um, yeah. with, uh, with food, that impacts restaurants, that impacts prices, and also it impacts people's ability to be able to go out and eat.
29: Yeah, I mean, well, d- well don't forget, Don, I mean, you know, before we get off the egg issue, I mean, when, when we think of eggs, you know, of course we start thinking about, you know, eggs in the morning for breakfast and, and, and our omelets and our, and our breakfast burritos, et cetera. But eggs are in a lot of things, you know. I mean, all the baking. When you think about baking things, you know, there's flour, sugar, butter, and eggs, you know, basically in everything, um, and there are eggs. You know, th- there are substitutes that you can use for eggs. You know, people on vegan diets, people with you know egg allergies, obviously have been doing that for a long time. They they substitute things like you know you know flaxseed and water or they or applesauce. You know, they'll bake bake with applesauce and and ripe bananas, and it's that's never quite the same, but it you know it does it is a good substitute. Um, <clears throat> but listen, you know, it's like. You can also, instead of having a three-egg omelet, have a two-egg omelet. You know, you save 33% of the cost and 33% of the calories, so maybe it's not a bad thing.
4: (laughs) Bobby, one thing we had you, that you talked about the first time you were on the show was this idea of people are still going to restaurants, but sometimes what we're hearing is that people are seeing, you know, fewer people order an appetizer, or maybe they're splitting an entree, or not getting a bottle of wine or dessert that typically they'd get. Is that still something you're seeing, or what is the landscape looking
29: like? Well, that, you know, that that obviously, Caitlin, is is uh, it's it's a result of, you know, of of inflation. And of course, you know, how people are feeling about the economy on that particular night that they go out to dinner. So maybe, you know, maybe they're spending a tiny bit less. Honestly, I don't really see it being that big of a deal right now. There's been some reports out that that dining has sort of weakened. I mean, when you compare it to the mini boom of the sort of post covid you know, moment where people really need to get out of the house and, and start living their lives again. I mean, they they went to restaurants in droves. I mean, you know, getting a, getting a reservation in a restaurant that you wanted to, to get into became incredibly difficult. And, and honestly, I still feel like it is. I had some friends um, in town in Los Angeles last week. We went to three restaurants. You couldn't get near the door. Now, of course, there's going to be a little bit of weakening compared to sort of that mini boom that we had. But I have to say, I still think it's hard to get in the restaurants you really want to go to.
2: Wait, Bobby Flay, I have a hard time believing <laughs> that Bobby Flay has an issue of getting into a restaurant. Because if I need a restaurant reservation, who am I going to call? I'm going to just go, Bobby Flay, can you get me into such and such?
29: Yeah. Um, listen, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm done. I mean, you're calling me out. I mean, I'm lucky. I'm, I'm in the restaurant community, so so I can always, you know, make that phone call if I have to. But what I'm saying is the energy in the restaurants, I get right, at, at this moment, what I've witnessed is really crazy. I mean, it's, it's uh, people are going out, and it's a good sign. So, yes, a tiny bit of weakening. I, th- I saw, like, a number was, like, 15 or 17% off. I mean, when you think about it, you know, it's, you know, it's still very, very busy no matter what.
2: Look, the restaurants are that's packed. That's a good thing. Here, wherever I go, restaurants are packed. I have a hard time sometimes getting a reservation, especially early. People are eating earlier now as we have, um, have witnessed. But yeah, it's tough.
29: Yeah, that's for sure. What time do you go to dinner, Don?
2: A lot earlier since I'm on this show. So probably, <laughs> okay. um, usually seriously around 6.30 or 7. And that was, I mean, in the old days, that was really early. Dinner was like 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock sure. here in New York. That has all changed. I, everything has changed. Yeah. Um, going out to eat our wardrobe this morning people are like probably freaking out because i'm wearing a you know a, a sweater that happens to have a hood on it but that's how we're dressed people aren't wearing ties as much anymore they aren't wearing suits as much anymore people are casual they're going to dinner early the pandemic shifted a lot of things for people i got to go quick response yeah
29: oh i mean listen i mean i think you know when you go from city to city i mean people still dress i think more in New York than they do in L.A. I mean, L.A., people go to dinner in nice restaurants in their workout gear. I mean, and it's, yeah. it's part of the fashion. Yep. yep. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. I like your look, Don. You're looking good. Thank you. By the way,
2: it is not like a cotton hoodie. It is a cashmere sweater oh, no, I happens know. to have a hood on
29: it. Oh, yes, it is. That's, that's,
2: <laughs> that's apparent. OK. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Good to see you, Bobby. Be well. Up next. This morning's number, 35. My age. We'll tell you why. Now.
20: <laughs> you
2: laughed out loud.
20: I moved here for a job. I am the new night court judge. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Night Court is back in session. The reboot of the 1984 sitcom debuted this week. The show's revival makes us wonder how many canceled series have been brought back. There have been a lot, just a lot. Our senior data reporter, Harry Anton, is here. Harry, that all plays into this morning's number. So what is it? All right. This morning's
14: number is 35. Uh, We essentially looked at, uh, tried to figure out how many of these revivals or sort of these spinoffs that are long after the original series ran, uh, are on the air or streaming right now, and it's at least 35, including Night Court. I believe also today uh, that 90 show, based off of that 70 show, is debuting. Now much of the original cast is coming back. But, you know, the question I have to ask is, who is asking for this type of thing, right? You know, I went and I looked at the IMDb scores of, I think we have uh, four sort of of these revivals compared to the original, and on all of them, the IMDb scores are worse for the revivals ...than they were for the originals. You can see we got CSI, we got Fantasy Island, we got Quantum Leap, we've got Night Court. They're all worse for the revivals than the originals. I haven't watched Night Court yet, but the early reviews seem kind of meh.
4: But isn't that because once something was so great, once you try to redo it again, people are never going to be satisfied? They're never going to feel like it was with the original?
14: Maybe so. I think nostalgia is kind of this funny thing, right, where the mind kind of plays on you a little bit... ...and you're thinking to yourself, hey, you know... I liked it back then. Maybe I'll like it now. But it turns out that the memories are fonder than the realities are.
4: Yeah. God, that was bleak. I don't don't know.
14: (laughs) I don't. I don't. I don't don't know if that was bleak. But you know, I'll point out one little last thing for you, and that is, you know, revivals. They aired back in the 1990s as well. You know, in the 1990, 1991 season, what we saw was a bunch of revivals. The new WKRP in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. We had the Brady's. We had the Carol Burnett show. We had Mission Impossible. So this isn't a new idea. It's just they're more frequent now than they used to
2: be. Don't nobody say nothing bad about Carol Burnett, OK?
14: Yeah. I love so Carol Burnett. I love the Brady's. Great theme song. All,
2: yeah. All right. Thank you, Harriet. Just Thank you. Great Up next, a surprise announcement from CNN. And it involves Adam Sandler.
4: That's a tease. Don't
2: nobody say nothing bad about
26: this. As I stare at this magnificent bust of Mark Twain, <laughs> I'm reminded of how humbled I am to receive such an honor, and how I vow to take very special care of it. Um,
12: this is a wonderful award. To see all my, my friends here and all the people I've worked with for their years, just it, it reminds me of, of just how many people I carried
26: <laughs> for so long.
7: And yet I hope that like Mark Twain, a hundred years from now, people will see my work and think, wow, that is actually pretty racist. <laughs>
12: And there was also some confusion about whether or not it was an award or a prize. And I, you know, and actually it's an award, even though they call it a prize. It's an award because usually when there's a prize, there's money involved. I feel like I'm in a wedding. It's like a hurricane around me, you know, and
21: everything's happening and it's a blur. But I tried to wear something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue.
4: (laughs) If you want to see more of that, this is. This speech that's going to come up is going to be great because mark your calendars. Sunday, March 26th is when CNN is going to exclusively broadcast wow. the 24th version of that, the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor, this time honoring Adam Sandler. The Mark Twain Prize recognizes individuals who've had an impact on American society in ways similar to the distinguished 19th century novelist and essayist Sam Clemens, who is best known by his pen name of Mark Twain. Some of the past winners, you got to look. Oh, I God. mean, a lot of them are of Adam Sandler ilk. You know, Saturday Night Live is where a lot of them got their start. This is going to be on Sunday night, March 26th, 8 p.m., right here on CNN. He's just going to follow in that long list of people. And, um, I mean, you know his, his speech yeah. is going to be good. I think we
2: need this. I think we um, – there was a conversation we had earlier this week. Um, with, it was yesterday with Segu, mm-hmm. where we talked about comedians – feeling like they can't really get their stuff out there because they're worried about being judged. I think we're in a moment where we need to let comedians be comedians. And I think Tina Fey actually was making a very good point when she said, you know, Mark Twain, someone will look back at my work and say, you know, that was really racist. She was unjust. But I watched 30 Rock now, not that it was racist, but it pushed the envelope. And I don't know if in this environment that you can get away with that stuff. And we should. We should allow comedians, I think, and comedy.
4: Well, it's also, it's a, more also, it's a reflection of how, you know, when something is made is so different than when you're seeing it right. in that present time. Adam Sandler, obviously, is someone who's also dealt with that, is how critics have looked at, at films that he made and what they look like. Now, he said, you know, he doesn't read the reviews anymore, And uh, but you know he's going to give a good speech. Good stuff. All right. Thanks for joining us this morning. CNN Newsroom starts right
15: now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.
0: When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store.